one way you can have additional impact is on the the signal you're sending to policies that you care about the environment and you care about climate change. But there's also a really strong like technology economics signal you're sending where if you buy an electric car, you're showing to the market, hey, there's a big market over here for people to serve, come and serve us, or like installing solar power or buying meat substitutes instead. Like we need to make these technologies cheaper for people in low-income countries for them to have as the default option. And by buying those, you're basically bringing down the cost curve for all of these technologies. Right, so it's right. like your impact is way beyond your like individual thing. It's like this collective pulling the market in a certain direction. Hey listeners, Rob here, head of research at 80,000 Hours. If you're like me, you're probably a fan of the website Our World in Data because it's just an incredible resource for figuring out what's going on in the world and which common narratives in the media are legit and which ones are actually nonsense. Uh, we spoke with its founder, Max Rosa, back in episode 103. Max Rosa on building the world's first great source of COVID-19 data. Over there, uh, Hannah Ritchie actually heads up their research. And over the years, she's published a number of articles that I've really liked, variously providing a reality check on topics like biodiversity, uh, population growth, plastics in the ocean, uh, the extinction of species, lead poisoning, uh, use of fertilizer in agriculture, the disappearance of bees, deforestation from soy production and my beloved soy milk, uh, and many other topics as well. Hannah is also a great read on Twitter as well. In today's episode, Louisa chats with Hannah about how low agricultural productivity and air pollution are these weirdly underrated issues today. Uh, they also talk about whether or not humanity is, in the big picture, managing to turn things around and save the environment, uh, and also why our perception on topics like that one uh, seem to so weakly track reality. But without further ado, I bring you Louisa Rodriguez and Hannah Ritchie. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Hannah Ritchie. Hannah is a senior researcher and the head of research at Our World in Data and author of the new book, Not the End of the World, How We Can Be the First Generation to Build a Sustainable Planet. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Hannah. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Nice. So I hope to talk about your book, The Ozone Layer, and why you think increasing agricultural productivity across sub-Saharan Africa is one of the most important problems this century. But first, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important? So currently I'm I'm still at Our and Data. I've been here for many years now. And there we're working on the world's largest problems. So I would hope that that would, that would uh, fit the importance criteria. Definitely. Um, so my, my time is split there between working on like core Our Own Data stuff. And that's ranging from the environmental topics that I cover to malaria, child mortality, like the really broad spectrum. So that's my work at Our Own Data. But I'm also doing quite a lot like externally from that. Um, in the sense of I've recently written a book, I've done the TED Talk, I'm doing some freelance writing. I think a large part of that is that uh, we get a lot of people coming to our own data, but it's also trying to push out the importance of what we do to new audiences and like different formats. So I've been doing a lot of that recently. Cool. What does and that look like? Um, so it's it's been interesting. It's It's quite different from our own data. I mean, writing a book is a very, very long journey. Doing a TED talk is obviously very, very different right, from, of I'm, I'm used to writing and then going to speaking and like what also a TED talk is obviously quite a, a high stress environment to do that, but it's 
trying to get like a really succinct argument across without all of the academic fluff and the like I would lean towards is like trying to add all the caveats. So doing that was like a really interesting experience and trying to like get to the crux of like the core argument that I'm making. Right. And like every word is like considered and valuable. How how did it feel doing the TED Talk? It is now seems like a complete blur. Like I practiced so (laughs) much beforehand. Then you like blacked out. Yeah. I mean, the advice was, you know, you've like practiced enough when you've got to the stage where you can basically do it without thinking. Like the, the advice they give you is like, you're giving the talk, but you also need to make eye contact with a different person every few seconds and so like a lot of that that requires like intense concentration so you actually can't really think about what you're saying the words um so yeah so I got I kind of got up there and you know you like you you're always worried that your mind's gonna blank right but I actually can't remember what I said I think (laughs) I said I mean I've watched it back so I know I said what I planned to say but it went by so quickly that like it was just a complete mind blank wow Um, that must be such a weird experience yeah um okay but you watched it back you said the things yeah Um, I said the things cool well we will be excited to link to that when it's when it's out yeah, I guess moving on to our yeah, to our first big topic. Um, you've written an article that makes the claim that low agricultural productivity across sub-Saharan Africa is one of the most important problems this century. So I'm interested in digging into that and kind of what concrete solutions might make achieving it possible. Yeah, so to start, um, why is increasing agricultural productivity in sub-Saharan Africa particularly important? So I should like preface this by saying that like one of the reasons I think it's an important problem is I can't, I think it's like very overlooked and underrated as a problem. Yeah, it was basically new to me stated that way. Like, I guess I don't think of sub-Saharan Africa as having like high agricultural productivity, but the idea that it might be like really pressing uh, and have like big benefits if addressed uh, was, was just totally a new idea. Yeah. And I think that the because it's somewhat overlooked and like slightly complex, I'm like not going to pretend that I have like all of the answers or solutions because I think there's like open questions there that I wish people were like paying more attention to. But my argument for why I think it's like one of the most important problems of the century is I think there's two elements to it. There's a very human element to it. So if you look at sub-Saharan Africa, And I'm also aware that we're talking about it like regionally when like there's obviously like very large differences across the region. But if you look at sub-Saharan Africa as a whole, around 40% of the population still live on less than 190 a day, like so below the international poverty line, which is like very low. And there's there'll be like many more that are like not that far above it. And then if you look at the, the employment across the region, like more than half work in agriculture. And if you look at the poorest, so it's estimated that around three quarters of those that are living in, in the deepest poverty are farmers. So they work in agriculture. So basically what we're saying is that most of the world's poorest work in agriculture. And the problem they face is that they're often really smallholder f- farmers they don't have the capital or the money to invest in fertilizers or machinery or to expand their land. So they basically, they need, they need labor. So they have, 
basically it's often like a family run farm where everyone in the family has to contribute. There's no money to like invest in education elsewhere. So they kind of almost get trapped in the cycle where they they don't get a lot from from crop production, but everyone in the family has to work there to just like stay afloat. And there's basically, you get locked in, there's almost no opportunities externally to go elsewhere. So one of my core arguments is that if you're going to address global poverty, you have to increase agricultural productivity in sub-Saharan Africa. Like there's almost no way of avoiding that. Right, right. And so the idea is like so many of these people that are earning the least in this region, which has many of the world's poorest, are working in agriculture, but producing so little relative to, I guess, the land they have, that they're not kind of earning nearly as much as they could. And by increasing their crop yields, which at the moment they can't do because they just can't afford to invest in it, you could lift a bunch of people out of poverty. Um, And that, I mean, yeah, that just sounds like a huge win. And then there's also, so there's the obvious human benefits to it, but there's also the environmental benefits. One of the impacts of having low crop yields is that you just need much more land to grow your food. And that's going to be a particularly pressing problem in sub-Saharan Africa because that's also where we're going to see the largest population growth in the next 50 years or so. So sub-Saharan Africa is going to need to produce even more food. And if they don't increase crop yields, then that's just going to come from expanding land, often at the cost of forests. So there's a very strong environmental case for if you want to address deforestation and biodiversity loss, then you have to somehow increase crop yields. Right. I guess you've, yeah, you've argued that the reason it's so low in sub-Saharan Africa is because, um, yeah, both labor productivity and land productivity are both super low. Um, So I wanted to talk about each of those in turn. Um, Yeah. Can you explain what labor productivity is? Yeah. So labor productivity is basically just how much money, or in this case, crops that you then sell for money, you get out per like unit of input. Where here we're talking about like per hour worked or per worker. So it's basically how much like human effort you have to put in to get like a dollar value in return. Yeah, right. Okay. And that's, that could be because like, if you've got great machinery, your labor productivity might be high because you can like use a tractor uh, as one person, but like do a bunch of productive work. Whereas if you don't have a tractor and you're using a hoe, your labor productivity uh, might be much lower because you can get less done. Is that the yeah, idea? Yeah, exactly. So like, um, like I often think about it as in, like in terms of like tending a garden or often it's like really, really like intense work like from a human labor perspective of like, you really need to work really hard and like see to it often. And often the amount you get back is not that much. In that case, your labor productivity is really low because you're working really hard and like not growing that much, which if you're just thinking about your gardens, fine. But if that's your livelihood, that's not good. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And how, yeah. How does labor productivity in sub-Saharan Africa compare to other regions? So if we think, if we like use a metric for it as like the amount of like value you'd get per worker so like like the economic value per person working on the farm like so the 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 average for sub-saharan africa is like half of the global average oh wow that is much lower than i would have guessed you would have said like half of the global average but it's like 50 times lower than you'd get in like the uk or the us i spoke too soon (laughs) but that's much more no it gets worse 
Oh, God. Okay. So if you look at some countries within sub-Saharan Africa, they're like half of the sub-Saharan Africa average. So there you're talking about like 100 times less than you get in the UK or the US. That's hard to, yeah, that's hard to even fathom. So you like put that in context, like the value that like an average farmer in the US might create in three to four days is the same as a Tanzanian farmer for like the entire year. That is really mind-blowing. Yeah. Yeah, and and it makes it super visceral to me why this would be a huge problem, both kind of economically and, and environmentally. Why is it so low in South Saharan Africa? So I think the there's a couple of reasons. One is that the farms are really small. So often the, the amount of crop or like value you get out is is quite low. And and maybe we'll come on to crop yields. So like low crop yields, you get a, like not that much out. But you also, as you said, you you can't you can't afford machinery or you can't afford fertilizers or pesticides or like things that would you would basically substitute for like human power inputs. So it just means you need lots of like hands on deck to like keep the farm going and keep it like at that baseline level of productivity. So you don't get much out and you just need like lots of people working on the farm. Okay. Um and then the other thing that, that seems to be really low here is land productivity, which feels a bit more intuitive to me. Um, is that basically how much crop yield you'd get from, for example, an acre of land? Yeah, exactly. So it's like what we would, like, I think what most people would call like a crop yield. So say we each have like a hectare to grow wheat. If you got four tons and I got two tons, your productivity would be, or your land productivity would be twice what I get. So it's, yeah, it's just how much you get from a unit of land. Yeah. And I guess I imagine things that factor into that are like some things that are intrinsic to the area, like, I don't know, quality of soil, just like naturally, or like, I don't know whether it's clay or not, but also I guess things that you could do to the land, like use fertilizers is that are there are there other things yeah so like there's a couple of factors that come into it one is as you say the quality of land so like the texture of the soil the natural like nutrient density like carbon content of the soil like how well it drains like all of these affect like how well a crop will grow but there are also ways that we can like change some of those aspects so we can use irrigation um, or drainage to determine how much water's in the soil, or we can apply our own nutrients through fertilizers. So there's like natural conditions, but there's also inputs that we can use to change that. Cool, cool. Okay, and then again, I'm guessing land productivity is is much lower in South Saharan Africa. How how much lower is it relative to other regions? Yeah, so again, it's very low. Um, like one way we can like compare is using like. We would use like cereal yields because most regions mm-hmm. grow some cereals. So if you compare the average in sub-Saharan Africa, it's about half that of India, which is less than half of the global average. So it's pretty poor. And then if you compare that to like richer countries, it's like four to five times lower. But then again, there are like countries within sub-Saharan Africa that will get like half again of of that regional average. So like there are some countries where you're talking about getting 10 times less per unit of land than in rich countries. So to get the same 
crop yields in one of these especially low yield countries, uh, you'd have to use 10 acres per one acre in in a really rich uh, productive country. Yeah, you need 10 times the amount of land, which again makes the environmental point like really clear, right? To grow, like imagine if we, like globally, we had to use 10 times the amount of land to produce our crops. Right, yeah. And why is that? Is it something particular about sub-Saharan Africa and like the the kind of like natural things about the soil and environment? I don't think so. And the reason for that is that there are examples where some countries within sub-Saharan Africa or even like for particular crop types, they can get good crop yields. Like I don't think it's just an issue that's in sub-Saharan Africa you can't grow You just food. can't grow like, anything. I, just, I don't think that's the case. There are a couple of reasons why or like like it's quite hotly debated as to like what the, the issue is there. Like some there's like very obvious like inputs uh like problems like can't afford fertilizers, can't afford irrigation. Sure. So there's like a range of like they just don't have the inputs or seeds that they would need to do that. There's also this like interesting hypothesis. I'm not sure how convinced I am by it and I'll give the reason for that. But there's this hypothesis that like rather than being a supply problem, there's also like a demand problem where say you're a farmer in in sub-Saharan Africa and you're growing to about subsistence level to like feed your family and you don't have access to a market to sell any more than that. It's like either you can't get to the market or at the market people can't afford to buy goods for you, then maybe you have no incentive to grow any more food than that and raise yields because you would have to invest in fertilizers and irrigation stuff, which if you can't sell the extra food that you're going to grow, then why would you do that? Right. So there's this hypothesis that there's like a demand problem where there's like not accessible markets to sell more. One reason, like I get that, and I I think there's probably examples where that's true. One reason I'm like not completely convinced is that it's not even apparent to me that many farmers are actually reaching subsistence because so many within Sub-Saharan Africa are, are undernourished. They don't get enough food to eat. So it's not obvious to me that they're actually growing enough even just to feed and meet their basic needs themselves. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And I guess one one thing I learned while reading your work on this in preparation for the interview was that most of the world actually had used to have much worse labor and land productivity that was actually similar to sub-Saharan Africa's. What were the key things they did to improve that sub-Saharan Africa, I guess, didn't end up doing. Yeah, that's true. Like, I think we we think about these low-yielding countries as, like, outliers now. But, like, for most of, like, our, our cultural history, that was just the norm. That was just the default. And, like, the basic reason there is that basically our farming was just at, like, the whims of nature. Like, water came when it came. You couldn't really, like, control it. You couldn't irrigate the soil. You had to just deal with the nutrients that were in the soil at the time because you couldn't add any more. Like what's really changed there is like one, we've been able to invest in irrigation and like improved seed varieties and stuff. But like a big change for many countries and we kind of see this inflection point in yields was like the the beginning of the Haber-Bosch process in the early 20th century 
where we basically figured out that we could make our own nitrogen fertilizer, which for for most crops, like nitrogen was the limiting factor. It's why it wasn't growing anymore. But we figured out that we could add it when we wanted to add it. And that's been like a massive driver of, of increased crop yields. And and why was it possible for the rest of the world to take advantage of that, but not sub-Saharan Africa? Yeah, one is like an obvious thing is that it just costs money. So the richer, if you if you um, have more wealth, then you can invest in that. Like for some other countries have been really successful in like subsidizing fertilizers because they realize that it's, it's so important to like break this kind of poverty trap where, so they've subsidized it. So it's much cheaper for the farmer in the first place. There's also the pairing of like fertilizer inputs with like having the right the right seed varieties. So like many countries have gone through this like kind of inflection point with basically genetic breeding of particular seed varieties that were really successful. I don't know if you've heard of Norman Borlaug. Uh yeah, I have, but um for people who haven't, remind us what what Norman did. Like he's kind of known as like one of the pioneers of like the modern agricultural revolution where like there were big concerns like Mexico, I think, was like the, his like first like a big project where there was big concerns that yields were really low and demand was massively outstripping supply. And basically, his task was to go there and figure out what um, seed varieties would work. And he did lots of intricate genetic breeding to find varieties that would work in that environment. And then he did the same. There was the same concerns in India and Pakistan, and he did the same in, in South Asia. Like, we just haven't really seen the same in sub-Saharan Africa. I'm not completely sure why. I think regionally, it's just even from, like, agrochemical perspective, which has its critics. But, like, if you're looking for genetic breeding and of particular seed varieties and fertilizer inputs and stuff, like, it, it, it plays a crucial role. And if you look at a lot of, like, agrochemical companies today, like, sub-Saharan Africa is just not even on their radar. Like some of the big companies, for example, they'll do like regional reports and have like regional divisions for some of them. Like it doesn't even warrant its own region, like it's lumped in with Europe. Oh, that's really depressing. So it's basically what they're saying there is that like Europe and North America and Asia and to some extent South America make make us loads of money and Africa doesn't. Therefore, like we'll just lump it in with Europe and report it under the European numbers. So I think I think they're like part of my motivation for like highlighting this as a big problem is to to somewhat shift the focus. Yeah, yeah, no that makes tons of sense. Because if they were able to catch up to other regions on kind of both labor and land productivity, uh how much of a dent could that make on the issues at stake? So I guess poverty, hunger, wildlife destruction. I mean it would be massive. Even if you do projections just even out to 2030 on like where um, the number of people that will live in extreme poverty, like most of them will be in sub-Saharan Africa. And wow. as I said before, like three quarters, it says to me that three quarters of those that are living in the deepest poverty are farmers. Like my, my argument is that we're not going to address global extreme poverty unless we fix this. Right, right. And to me, that's like arguably our most pressing problem we face. So it's just not possible without doing that. There's also the obvious argument that like that's also where population growth is going to be happening most over the coming decades. And already like around 20% in sub-Saharan Africa don't get enough calories every day. 
and that's if they if if, if we don't in, improve crop yields there, that's just going to get worse as the population grows. And finally, the 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 environmental argument. So actually, like some of my colleagues at Oxford University, like basically modelled what would happen to habitat loss for different species out to 2050 and like what we could do about it. And like one of their key findings is that in sub-Saharan Africa, there's going to be, if, if things don't change, there's going to be a lot of deforestation because of low crop yields. But what they do, what we can do, and actually this links back to the question of, is it just uh, like maybe sub-Saharan Africa just doesn't have the land and stuff to do this? researchers like can also calculate what they call attainable yields which is like what yields these countries could achieve if they had the right technologies and fertilizers and stuff and the estimates come out that they could around triple their current yields just by changing like how much fertilizer they're able to use, the irrigation technologies they're able to use, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, basically using existing technologies that we have in a good way, they could basically like triple yields. So it's not that this is like a, it's not that this is not addressable. Right, it's not a pipe dream. Yeah. Yeah, I guess to to tie that back to like how much their productivity lags behind other countries. Yeah, where would that put them? I guess it sounds like maybe that would put them on par with India, if I'm remembering the figures correctly? Uh, it would put them like a bit above India, actually. But we would also hope that like India could increase its yields because it also has gaps. But it would take them, it would, it would make a massive difference, obviously. And from an environmental perspective, what these researchers calculated is that if, you, if, if these countries manage to achieve their attainable yields, then basically the habitat loss would be zero. Because they wow. just wouldn't need to use any more land to grow food because they would just meet food demand through increasing yields instead. That's amazing. Does that take into account uh, population growth? Yes, it takes into account population growth. Nice. That's amazing. I guess like concretely, it sounds like the way to achieve that is like doing whatever these scientists found was best going to uh, improve yields in terms of, yeah, whatever these technologies are that that would make the biggest dent. I guess I'm both interested in like which technologies were those and also how how we actually get those used, given that like it's like not happened yet. So I don't think there's like one single thing. I think there's like a bunch of low-hanging fruits and it's very context-dependent. I've seen very good evidence that like one of the lowest hanging fruits is irrigation. I mean, obviously like variable water, whether that's drought then followed by flooding or just continuous drought is obviously a massive problem in that region and will actually get worse with climate change. So being able to uh, provide water to the crops when it's needed is really beneficial. The other one is fertilizers. Like, as I said, many other countries have heavily subsidized fertilizers at least for a brief period of time till you can almost like break that deadlock that has come with other issues on the other end so you often find that countries that have like really heavily subsidized fertilizers now like over consume the most because right, they're so right. cheap like farmers just put as much on as they can but there's i think there's like really low uh hanging fruit there Again, as I said, I I think investment from like agritech in this region is really important. I even think I can make a 
reasonably like strong economic case for them to do so. There's this like starting problem where currently they might not have the the finance to drive the market, but it's almost like once it gets going, it could be very big. And the point there is that like that's currently the region that's like like least invested in these technologies. So arguably where you have the biggest market. And it's also where population growth and uh, increase in crop production will need to be highest. So like to me, it just seems very obvious that if you could get that market going, that's massive. Right, right. So it's this kind of emerging market. That makes sense. I mean, I guess it seems like a like this is probably just a problem that occurs in in many industries that like don't uh, meet the demands of low income countries. I guess like if there's no initial demand or little, there like aren't the right incentives to like start producing a thing, uh, even though the thing will eventually get big. Do you know of the types of solutions that can overcome that? Yeah, I think it needs to be like very early investments, either at like a very like high discount or like subsidized in some way. I definitely think my suggestion here to some is controversial because there are controversies around the way that many of these companies behave in these markets. How so? I mean, there's always the big backlash against Monsanto, for example, where they basically try to create a monopoly. And I think there would be concerns that some of those relationships could be like quite exploitative in the end, where basically agri-tech companies create seed varieties that only work with a specific fertilizer that then they sell. And then they, they, they you could almost imagine farmers getting stuck in another trap. So I'm very aware of that and don't want to overstate that like this is like some easy solution that doesn't have issues. But I think to me it seems it seems clear that we're not gonna massively increase agricultural productivity there in the region without some of these investments. Yeah. So what does it look like for this to go really well? Like who has to do what? Um and and then and then how does that trickle down to to changing these outcomes? I think there's I mean, the big players are obviously the country governments themselves. And they are like, I get that this it's difficult when your finances are already constrained of like how to allocate resources. But like, to me, it just seems like this is just like a really key fundamental problem. And mm-hmm. these economies are not going to grow significantly until they address the problem. And and those governments are having to do things like uh, like subsidize some of these inputs or yeah some other types of programs that address I don't know I guess the biggest the biggest issues yeah there's like one is like subsidizing or promoting the inputs one interesting dimension is the 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 market demand problem where like it's how you create an environment either within country or internationally where there is just a really strong market and I think some of that can come from domestic governments but I think there's also like an international role to play there where you can for example change trade tariffs just in some way where you can give preferential treatment or even just like equal the playing field a bit such that there's also larger domestic markets and incentives, but also much larger like international markets um, for farmers to sell into. Right. So like lowering the tariffs on crops produced in sub-Saharan Africa might make it so that it's there's like a bigger market for those smallholder farmers to sell to. And then when there's a bigger market and they're earning more, there'll be this feedback loop where they're then investing more in inputs. Exactly. Yeah, cool. 
Um, yeah. Are there are there any other yeah kind of low hanging fruit or things that you think should be done kind of right away to make a dent in this? I mean, there's also just like a large like a research dimension, like agricultural research dimension, where like as I said, like it's I found the research on this like quite murky in terms of like really like pinpointing this is like how we have a big impact here. I think partly because it's just so heterogeneous across the region, as you'd expect. But I think there is just like large area for research on how particular soils affect the growth of these crops, like how different seed varieties fit in, like what's the ideal combination of fertilizer and irrigation, for example. So I think there's still like lots of room for for good research. Cool. Let's go ahead and push on to a related topic then, which is your book. So you've written this book called Not the End of the World, How We Can Be the First Generation to Build a Sustainable Planet. It comes out next January, though it's available for pre-order on Amazon now. And I'm super excited to read it because, uh, yeah, I guess I've just had the sense for years, uh, especially as a college student, that the environment is just uh, kind of doomed. And yeah, it seems like this book is a much more hopeful take uh, on environmental issues than that. Can you lay out the core argument you're making in the book? Sure. So I think the book like partly follows my own journey. And I think my own journey was probably very similar to yours, where by the end of my like university degrees, like I, I was very much in the camp of we're completely doomed. And actually, maybe that was even heightened by the, I don't know what you studied, but I did environmental sciences. So like, I was just like for four or five years getting hit in the face every day with like, everything's getting worse. All of these environmental problems. Yeah. Yeah. And there was very little framing around like, whether solutions were happening. Like it was very much like, this is the problem. And like, maybe here's a few solutions, but it was the solutions are too slow and they're not working kind of. (laughs) That's really depressing. Yeah. So I think by the end of my university degree, I was very much in the doomsday camp and actually like probably like not that far from like walking away from doing that stuff because I felt like maybe there was just nothing I could actually do. Like it was completely helpless and like there was these massive problems and what could I like little me like contribute in any way. Right. So I was like actually very close to like just walking away and doing something else. I didn't in the end. And I think the book is really the summary of what I've learned over the last seven or so years. And a lot of that I've learned through our own data and like really taking in, this is a big picture on how these environmental issues are going um to get to where we are now and then looking at solutions and how quickly they are moving or not moving and i think that's really shifted my perspective a lot on the fact that these problems and what i lay out in the book and i go through environmental problem by problem that they're big problems they're urgent and i don't want to take away from that but i also think that they're solvable and we are really starting to see a lot of progress on the solutions so it's trying to take this very like pragmatic evidence-based approach, not this like wishy-washy, like, yeah, it'll all be fine. Right. Saying right. these are problems, but I think they're very, very solvable. And I want to like turn the framing around from we're doomed to know like we can actually solve this if we if we come together to do so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it probably is important to emphasize that it's not like you're denying these are problems. In fact, you think they're huge and important problems. It's just that you 
for a long time thought uh, as, as possible, we just really weren't going to solve them. And you learned more things that made you more optimistic. Um, is that basically right? Yeah, exactly. Like the like, if I didn't think there were problems, I wouldn't be spending my whole life trying right, to work on them right, and right, right. having sleepless nights trying to figure stuff out. Um, so yeah, there are big problems, but I want to turn the discussion around from there's nothing we can do about it to yeah, there really is stuff we can do about it. And what do we actually have to do? Cool. Okay, well, let's get into it. Um, I've read the first few chapters of the book and really enjoyed it. And early on, you make the claim that kind of surprised me. Um, so this is the claim that the world has actually never been sustainable. And yeah, I, I didn't, I just found that really counterintuitive uh, until I read more about what you meant. Um, can you explain that? Sure. So like, I, I get that it's a controversial claim and it does seem counterintuitive. I think probably where you came from on that initially was that you were thinking, I, I'm guessing you were thinking about purely environmental sustainability, where you're thinking like all of the big environmental problems that we face. So the rise in energy consumption and CO2 and um, plastic pollution, etc., like has basically happened in the last 200 years or so, like most of it probably in the last 50 years. Yep. So if you look at those trends, it's like everything, all this bad stuff has happened right. in the last 50 years. And like before it was all fine and there was none of these problems. And that's where I also would have came from, from an environmental background. And I think when you frame it as that, there's like a large amount of truth to the fact that our ancestors were sustainable. Like they didn't have really large environmental impacts. And there I would say that that's mostly true. There are some areas like... It's not the case that they lived in perfect balance with nature. There's yeah, it does seem like one of those things that's really easy to romanticize. Um, yeah. yeah, like indigenous peoples uh, didn't cause harm to the environment. They lived harmoniously with it or something. Yeah, and there's like clear examples where there just was large impacts. Like one key one is if you look at the change in, in biodiversity, specifically mammal biodiversity over time, you see that mammals have got smaller and smaller. And this has been happening over millennia. This is not just the last wow. few centuries. Right. Okay. So, and like a large part of that was, was over hunting and the humans were hunting. And, right. and at the time, the populations were really, really small. Like we're talking about a global population of maybe 5 million at the time and more than a hundred of the world's largest mammal species went extinct. Oh, and wow. most of that is thought to be through, through over hunting. So it's right. not the case that there was zero impact. But I actually accept, I accept the argument that environmentally, our ancestors mostly lived with a very low environmental impact. And recently that's been knocked off. Yeah. But where I would contest the sustainability part is if you think about why their environmental impact was so low, it's because their populations were tiny. And the reason their populations were tiny is because child mortality was so high. So half of children were dying before reaching puberty. Right. So God. you had really high fertility rates. So like lots of children being born, but half of them were dying. So you basically didn't have really population growth and populations were tiny. So my contest there is, is like, is that really what we're saying sustainability is? Like, right, right. Are we going for a sustainable world where what we mean is like, well, we're not harming the environment because... Uh, so many of our children die that we're not growing as a population. Right. That so, seems, yeah. yeah, like not the goal. Yeah. So if you care about human suffering, to me, you also need to consider that in this definition we want to adopt of sustainability. So I think they are like my definition there, and it's, it's kind of the definition of sustainable development. 
uh, which is like a kind of newish but also controversial uh, like term for some people, is we need to have low environmental impacts to perfect future generations and other species. But we also need to provide, meet the needs of the current generation. Like we want to have low human suffering today, but also protect future generations and other species. So to me, like the sustainability equation has two halves there. And I think we've never achieved both halves at the same time. Like our ancestors might have achieved the environmental part, but they didn't achieve the human suffering. We've kind of flipped the other way where we're doing much better on meeting human needs, but that's came at the cost of the environment. And my core argument in the book is that like, I think we could be the first generation that does achieve both at the same time if we do the right things. Yeah, that is an incredibly hopeful message. I wonder if some people would be, I don't know, surprised or resistant to the claim that you make early on, which is that we, yeah, we are doing increasingly well at meeting the needs of people in the present. I guess I'm, I can, I can hear some people thinking um, that, I don't know, poverty is super widespread still and uh, yeah, millions die from preventable diseases. Um, I think there the distinction is that they they might confuse doing better by doing perfect. And my argument is not that we're doing perfect, like okay. far from it. Like, I mean, a large part of what we do on our own data is highlighting that nearly one in 10 people live in extreme poverty and nearly one in 10 people don't get enough food to eat. So my argument is not that we are there and we're we're meeting the needs of the current generation. But if you look at almost any metric of human well-being, like it's got dramatically better, whether that's health, poverty, hunger, nutrition, education, just pick any metric and like across the world has got better. There's been large differences in that amount of progress, but there's also often this misconception that some countries have just made zero progress. And that's just not true. Like if you look at the poorest countries today, they still have lower child mortality rates than the rest the whole world had for like most of human history. So like everyone's made progress. It's just it's happened at different rates. And we want to accelerate. Obviously, we want to accelerate in places where it's been slowest. Right, right. Cool. Yeah, I just think that's a really lovely message. And yeah, I, I'm excited to be convinced uh, that we can have kind of those both halves. The rest of the book is then about kind of the environmental side of things. So yeah, you make the claim um, and actually you've got a bunch of really helpful data uh, people can look at on how much better the world has gotten from yeah a humanitarian perspective. But then you explore the kind of seven major environmental issues of our time. So uh, I think it's air pollution, climate change, deforestation, food production, biodiversity, ocean plastics, and overfishing. And then you take each in turn, uh, you look at where we are now, how things have been going and what we can do to solve each of them, which I think is just a really wonderful format. So yeah, I, I want to talk about a few of them. We won't have time to talk about all of them. But uh, I guess uh, just to start, is is climate change the most worrying of these environmental issues? Mm, I think I often lean against the like rankings of the issues oh, in terms of okay. this is most... And I I get why people would want to do that. And I think on other issues, I would do that because even from a like, what do we prioritize? What do we allocate reasons? Like I get the arguments for ranking. The reason I don't really like it in this case is because a lot of the solutions to the problems are the same. So right. like if you want to address air pollution, uh, you reduce 
fossil fuel use and that also addresses climate change or what you do to reduce deforestation or biodiversity loss also addresses climate change. So like a key, a key point is that the, often the solutions like tackle many issues at the same time. And I think often people get into this dilemma where they think there's so many environmental problems and they seem so complex that they kind of become paralyzed by maybe I'll change this and it will make climate change better. But maybe I'm like having an impact in another way. Yeah. So they get paralyzed because they think that they're going in opposite directions when actually the core solutions are basically the same and they get us towards the same goal across the different issues. Right. Yeah. Can you give an example? Um, I feel like I have had the experience of being like, oh, I'm going to improve my own like uh, environmental impact by doing one thing. And then I'm like, but maybe that thing is actually in some convoluted chain of events, um, worsening my environmental impact. Uh, I'm trying to think like maybe a, maybe a pretend example that I'm making up on the spot would be like, if I switched from, uh, yeah, drinking milk from cows, because I think cows take up a lot of land and also something about methane, uh, to oat milk, maybe I'm totally missing something where like producing oats also has a big impact on the environment in a way that I don't know. Um, is that the kind of thing people are getting confused about? Uh, is there Are there other examples or, or do you mean something else entirely? No, that's exactly what I mean. Um, yeah, like, the, like that example actually comes up a lot. Really? Okay. Or like the more common example is, and by the way, to that question, like all of the like plant-based milks have mm-hmm. a lower environmental impact than cow's milk across nice. all the metrics. So that's amazing. Like, so yeah, so it so is so just simple. It's a win-win across the board. Nice. Like a common one is the the soy argument where people, they've heard a lot of scary stories about soy and deforestation in the Amazon. Right. So they think, oh, if I reduce my meat consumption, but I replace it with these like soy-based, plant-based products, I'm going to increase deforestation in the Amazon. Like that's not going to be sustainable. Um, but actually the core point there is that most of the world's soy is fed to animals rather than used for like (laughs) direct human consumption. So like, that's just, it's just not an argument against that. Nice. But you can see why people would, would get into that paralysis where they don't actually know what to do in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So it sounds like in lots of the cases, uh, that you've looked into, and my impression is that you've looked into many of them, um, the theme tends to be like you can make, uh, I guess, individual choices and you can find solutions that are kind of bigger than the individual level that like don't require these really tough trade-offs. In fact, like often there are good things to do that are good in a bunch of different uh, environmental directions. Yeah. But like away from that detour and to get back to your initial question on like whether climate change is the most worrying environmental issue. I think if you, I mean, it depends how you frame it. If you frame it from a like human risk uh, impact suffering perspective right now, it's not. the Right now, the biggest issue is air pollution. Or if you quantify it on the basis of how many people die or health impacts, it's air pollution. Um, where you've got seven, eight, uh, there's a range of estimates, but they're in the millions of people that die from air pollution. Wow. And climate change is is not having that impact currently. That's not to say, and there's obviously a big future risk, um, but if you're looking like purely on a, a, a quantitative basis now, I'd say it's air pollution. Wow. Yeah, I guess I've heard air pollution 
discussed here and there, but it's interesting to me that it's causing so many more or causing so much more harm, at least right now. And I feel like I've heard like, I don't know, like 1% as much about air pollution as I have about climate change. Um, I guess that might still make sense if, yeah, projecting out climate change is going to cause a bunch more harm. But that does still feel surprising to me to hear. Do you mind saying a bit about what makes air pollution so bad? I guess I have the vague sense that it like causes health issues, but I don't really know the scope of it. And I don't really know uh, like what kinds of health issues we're talking about. Right. So I think the, I mean, I think on air pollution, the the evidence uh, and research around it is like emerging more and more every day. Like it seems to be every, oh, interesting. Like every week we hear a new study about like a new, a new link between air pollution and other impacts that have been found. But I think the 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 core impacts that we've we've known about for a long time is mostly related to like cardiovascular health. I mean, there are a range of air pollutions that are harmful. But like really small particles, which which we would call PM two point five, so like two point five microns in diameter, so really really tiny. And the fact that they're really really tiny means they can really get lodged in your lungs and your airways. So there's very strong links between air pollution and cardiovascular disease or respiratory diseases, stroke, etc., where basically it increases the likelihood that you would die or have health issues from these mostly respiratory issues. Got it. And do you have a sense of, uh, yeah, I guess in countries where air pollution is really high, how many deaths it's causing for per year, for example? So... Globally, I don't have like specific country figures, but globally, I mean, there's a range of estimates, but the the most commonly quoted are like the WHO, I think, quotes around 7 million deaths per year globally. Wow. Um, it's, in, it's in the millions, just the debate is around how many millions. Got it. And I think actually as, as our understanding of air pollution evolves, it tends to be that it, the estimates go up. We tend to think that we've like underestimated the impact of air pollution on health in the past. Um, so it tends to update uh, upwards. Got it. Okay. And that's because we learn that more and more deaths uh, can be attributed to air pollution once we like understand more about uh, specific health issues and how they're linked to these pollutants or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I guess if you if you project out over the next 50 years or so, does it seem like climate change is going to swamp that? Or do you think air pollution is just like generally kind of underrated as a problem area? I think it's underrated as a problem area. I think air pollution and climate change in many ways just go together. Like, as I mentioned, the the, the solutions to climate change and air pollution are very, very similar. Right. So like, if we address one, we address the other one. So like, we basically have the option, do we want to tackle climate change and air pollution in the next 50 years? Or do we not? And, and like it's a, like almost like a binary. Right. Well, that's, I mean, that seems like great news. And yeah, again, not what I would have expected. I think that that's also where we've seen just a lot of progress. And I think that like a lot of that progress, we just don't see and we just don't acknowledge. Right. Like I think in rich countries, for example, I think like a lot of people would have the impression they would, like, they would like their impression of this density of London, for example, is like, uh, bumper to bumper, like cars and taxis, like pollution spewing out the cars. Like it's very easy to imagine that like pollution levels are like almost as high as they've ever been in reality. Like the air in a lot of rich countries is like the cleanest it's been for centuries. 
And that's just often a perspective that we lose. And I think there's like a ton to learn from from cool. how we did that. Yeah. And also okay, to like apply to other countries. Elsewhere. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am curious what we've done right in rich countries. So I think there's a few things. Well, I think like on the issue of air pollution overall, there's like two aspects to it. One is I can come back to the rich countries, like outdoor air pollution. Sure. There's also a big like indoor air pollution story hmm. where... Like, what's that story? So it's just like a really, I think it's often just like a really underrated problem where like still millions of people die from indoor air pollution. So like if you, if you burn, for example, wood or like oh, of crop waste or dung right. for like cooking or heating which is the reality for a lot of people on very low incomes in the world of course um and was the same for for most people throughout history then you generate like a lot of indoor air pollution and it's really really bad for for human health like still millions of people die every year from it but it used to be much worse like we've made amazing progress on that and how how have we done that the, the I mean the biggest thing is just lifting people out of poverty. Like they use those fuels because they don't have access to like cleaner gas to burn or electricity. So it's really about them climbing the what we call the energy ladder, where they go from like these dirty sources to like cleaner ones. Um, and a big part of that is just having the money and resources to do it. Cool. Okay. So so that's just been kind of a side effect of work on poverty that's been done. Is there more to the story on indoor pollution or is that kind of the central thing? And aside from that, it's it's working on uh, outdoor air pollution. I think that's the, the central thing is like, I think it's like a very unknown problem. It does feel super unknown to me. Do you, do you happen to know um, what kinds of numbers we're talking about? So I think since if you look at the change over time, I think we've, so since 1990, globally, we've halved global deaths from indoor air pollution. But I think it's still a couple of million, two to three million a year um, is wow. estimated to still die from it. So there's like, there, there's like very low hanging fruits to, to save millions of lives. And is the thing to do there still like, um, if you if you help get the poorest people um, out of poverty, they'll have access to cleaner uh, energy sources? Yeah, so there's like a couple of ways to do it. One is just to to reduce poverty, which is like quite a high as I guess hard. Yeah. Um there are like some some ways to do it, for example, for like funding like cleaner cooking stoves, which makes some difference. Uh-huh. I think the there are like a couple of RCTs that like like show like good benefits there. I think maybe some of the research is lacking on like just like what the, the actual benefits of cooking of like switching to these are. Yeah, yeah. Should we should we turn to uh, outdoor air pollution? Yeah, sure. So, yeah. yeah, what's the story there? So, a lot of countries have made a lot of progress on it. The most dramatic decline has happened in rich countries, but we are now starting to see that in more middle income countries, like in some cases, very very fast. So, for example, like China is a good example where, like, for some of their air pollutants, they've like reduced emissions by two thirds and you're talking about less than a decade like seven wow. years to two thirds reductions so like that's amazing it is How possible to do it very quickly so there's a couple of ways that rich countries and and other countries can do it one is just the the standard reducing fossil fuel burning so the uk for example like used to basically entirely run on coal basically we have none the air pollution benefits of getting rid of coal have just been absolutely massive 
But there's also other stuff we can do where if we don't want to get rid of fossil fuels, then we can basically just put uh, pollution limits on the power plants themselves. Huh. Okay. And what, what do they do when there are pollution limits? How do they reduce pollution in other ways? So like a good example of this is actually like the example of acid rain and like basically how the Europe and US and various other countries tackled that. So when you burn coal, you form sulfur dioxide, which is basically the precursor to acid rain. Okay. Um, and this used to be a massive problem and basically isn't a problem anymore because we solved it. And so the way they solved it is that they put limits on, on power plants and said you can only emit this amount of of sulfur dioxide. So what you can do in a coal power plant is basically install this technology, which basically scrubs out the sulfur dioxide. So you have your smokestack, it basically removes the sulfur dioxide. So the, the, the stuff coming out the top of the chimney just doesn't have sulfur dioxide in it. And you basically completely eliminated the thing. So there's various examples of like, if it's too tall in order to just eliminate your fossil fuels there are ways to reduce the amount of pollutants that come with burning fossil fuels yeah and i guess i don't know exactly maybe you can tell me which countries have the worst air pollution now i have i don't know a guess that like india is probably up there um and it sounds like maybe china was but it's doing better so the there's like this like controversial environmental kuznets curve where like if you imagine on your x-axis, you've got income. So from like poor to rich. And then on the y-axis, you've got any like environmental, like pollutant metric. The, the, like, the theory of the curve is that like when you're really poor, you have really low environmental impact. Right. And then as you get richer, it rises. And then it like basically peaks at like middle income. And then as you start to get richer, people care about the environment. They don't want air pollution. So then it starts to fall again. Right. And they like have the resources to like actually do anything about that. Right. Exactly. So the the theory is that like pollution is often worse in like middle income countries. Uh-huh. And there's lots of environmental issues that this trend doesn't really seem to fit. But for air pollution, it's like pretty true. So if you look at the the most polluted countries, um, it's basically middle income countries. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And just to make sure I understand the Kuznet curve, does it basically end up looking like a bell curve? Yeah, exactly. A bell curve. Uh, like a lot of environmental impacts don't necessarily follow it. But the, the aim that we're kind of looking for is for countries to like basically follow a much shallower Kuznets curve than the ones before them. So like rich countries, so the UK, for example, went on this really high, long Kuznets curve where it like polluted for centuries, like really long time. And basically what we want to achieve is that for countries to be able to like go through that process really, really quickly with a low impact. And obviously they need to be, they need to have like affordable resources and technologies to do that. Right, right. So that they don't um, spend time in that part of the curve where like the incentives don't make sense for them to exactly. prioritize environmental impacts more. Cool. Yeah, that's just like a really lovely idea and visual. What can lower and middle income countries be doing? I guess you've already given a great example, which is scrubbing the sulfur dioxide from 
yeah, I guess the smoke that's coming out of the smokestacks. Yes, yeah, exactly. Cool. Yeah. Are there other are are low hanging fruit that these countries uh, could be adopting? Um, so that's how China managed to basically like slash its emissions by two thirds. They just got like serious on right. doing that. Like a big trigger for that was the actually like the Beijing Olympics and the years that followed from that. Um, Interesting. So they're like, we're about to have this huge event. We want our country or like some areas to be less polluted. So we're just going to like throw a bunch of resources at that. Yeah. Although it wasn't really ready in time for the the Beijing. Like they reduced, um, they reduced pollution by a bit, but not not massively and i think it still goes down as like the most polluted olympics ever or something wow but it was actually like more of the like the discontent from people in china afterwards and the years that followed of like there's all of the eyes are on us for the olympics we need to like we need to get a grip on the air pollution yeah and then it started to slide back a bit after the olympics and then I think people in China were like, actually, no, we're not happy. Like, we, we want cleaner air, which has kind of sparked, like, the China then put it into, like, their five-year strategy that they had these really tough pollution reduction targets. Um, and they've actually, I mean, they've actually done it. That's really cool. Wow. Cool. And so, yeah, the thing that people were noticing, were they noticing it on the day-to-day um, pollution in the form of, I don't know, smog or acid rain or or, like, actually noticing in their breathing or uh were they like aware that longer term health outcomes were worse i mean i think a mix i think it's just it's just very visible in in many cities and it like in many countries it gets worse seasonally because it's oft, often also goes with weather so you have periods where it's less bad and then like really really bad winters like right for example in delhi and in india you will often get this like winter haze and smog and it's like really really bad wow okay so it's super super visible yes it's it's very very visible pollution is bad yeah Yeah. Yeah. okay so it sounds like china ended up having this kind of cool i guess citizen-led demand for improvements and it just did it yeah do you see something like that happening in in some of these other countries i think i think part of it depends again where on the curve they are Right. Like people often compare China and India, but in terms of economically, China and India, like per person, they're very and de- very different scenarios. So, like towards the top of the Kuznets curve, you kind of have this like you still have this tug of war of we want to burn more fossil fuels because we need it for energy and to raise living standards, and like it costs money to install scrubbers on these coal plants. So do you want to put that demand on on power plants where it might make uh, energy a bit more expensive and yeah. that's going to come at the cost? So there's this like this like yeah, kind of tug of war. Tension. Yeah. yeah. So I guess given that, how do you, how do we as a world do this thing that you've described, I guess, as like, I don't know if it's like flattening or like compressing the Kuznets curve? Um, how do you get some countries to leapfrog some of that um, that worst long period of high pollution? I think there the onus has to be on rich countries. Um, the way you do it is to make the low carbon and non-polluting technologies cheaper than fossil fuels. So there's actually no dilemma about whether you go for the the coal or the oil or the gas because solar and wind or nuclear are like already cheaper so like there's just absolutely no need 
to go through the pathway, you can get cheap, affordable, clean energy without having to make that trade-off. And there we've seen amazing progress on reducing the prices of these technologies where they are like pretty much there. And a lot of that has come from investing in it very early when they were expensive. And it's only really rich countries like very early on, like a couple of like a decade, a couple of decades ago that had the resources to do that. But it has completely like absolutely slashed the prices of these technologies. And the hope is that you that then they're just completely affordable for other countries. Cool. Is the main problem to solve um, sulfur dioxide in particular? No. So that's just one example. So that's the the precursor to acid rain. Like some of the other ones that are bad for human health is what we call NOx. So like you get that from from power plants and industry, but you also get that from like fossil fuel cars, for example, where you get that mm-hmm. out the tailpipe. And that's nitrous oxide? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And... That Yeah, that's bad for health. And do you solve it with the same kinds of scrubbers or is it a different technology? No, completely different. But they are, they are the stories kind of similar where we basically just put regulations on car manufacturers and said there's a limit to how much can come out of the tailpipe. Right. And you need to find a technology that reduces that. Okay. And some like, I mean, you, I'm sure you've probably heard like the like emissions gate scandal where like manufacturers would try to like basically like game their way around some of these regulations. But generally, these regulations have been very, very effective. Like they haven't reduced them to zero, which is why moving away from gasoline cars is beneficial, but they have significantly reduced pollution. Got it. So there's like some cases of getting around these things that... Uh, are not helpful and are extra legal. But for the most part, uh, these kinds of regulations have worked well. And the regulations really are incentivizing pretty impressive improvements to technology. Is that a reasonable summary? Yeah, I think that's reasonable. I think there's always the argument that they should be more stringent and we should be doing more. I think people are often somewhat down on the role that like policies can play. Um, But I actually think there's like loads of examples where it's just played a massive role. And you just wouldn't get that from technological change alone. You need this combination of, often you need the policies to drive the technological change in the first place. Is that a theme? Is that a theme throughout the book where you're like, probably there are technologies that we can come up with to solve some of these environmental issues, but a key way to get them is by putting in place policies that incentivize the, uh, I guess, development of those technologies? Yeah, I think the I think that often the the economics and the political ends often like go very closely together. Like I often get the question from people of there's always this question of like changing individual behaviors like what impact does it actually have and am I wasting my time because it's all about systemic change. Or you hear this argument often from from countries some of them very rich like the UK for example where people say like the UK only emits 1% of carbon emissions right like what we do just doesn't matter in the scheme of things but like the key argument i'm making whether it's like sp- talking about like individual changes or changes for countries which now are quite small emitters is that the the impacts they have like really have these large spillover impacts on on one on policies but also on the economics of the technologies right so an example of that on an individual level if you like one way you can have additional impact is on the 
the signal you're sending to policies that you care about the environment and you care about climate change. But there's also a really strong like technology economics signal you're sending where if you buy an electric car, you're showing to the market, hey, there's a big market over here for people to serve, come and serve us. Right. Or like installing solar power or um, buying meat substitutes instead. Like what you're doing there, as we discussed, we need to make these technologies cheaper for people in low income countries for them to have as the default option. And by buying those, you're basically bringing down the cost curve for all of these technologies. Right, so it's right. like your impact is way beyond your like individual thing. It's like this collective pulling the market in a certain direction. Right, okay. So the argument is something like, while you might not uh, think it's that important for you to buy an electric car from like your own environmental perspective, because generally cars in the UK have technology built in them that means you won't be emitting loads, even if you have a non-electric car. But if loads of people in the UK buy electric cars, then the electric car technology just gets really good and drives the price down. And if the price is low enough, other countries, uh, lower and middle income countries might eventually get to just like go right to the electric car and skip over some of that intermediate step where they're polluting loads. Right. I mean, I think that, I mean, that's, that wasn't strictly true because, um, because cars in the, the UK, like they might have lower, like local air pollutants, but they still emit a lot of carbon. Okay. Right. So it's not that they like don't emit a lot of carbon, but yeah, like that's the core of the argument that by like, basically what pulled these prices down was people buying them when they were really expensive. And and that's the only reason that they've come down in cost is because they were but they were being deployed because people were were buying them when they were expensive, um, and we never would have seen these costs decline if we hadn't invested in them them early. Yeah, um, that feels really cool to me as a way. Um, I guess I'd like not had the visceral sense that like I don't know rich people in California all buying Teslas was like that important for the world. But I guess if it's, um, yeah, creating this flow through effect where like it makes Tesla's and the technology that makes Tesla's possible much cheaper, uh, then they will just eventually exist elsewhere in the world uh, much sooner than they might have otherwise. Right. The price decline in these technologies is like enormous. So like, for example, if you look at batteries, so like the big hurdle for electric cars for a long time was the cost of the batteries. So if you go back to like 1990, like I calculated like the cost of a Tesla battery that you'd use in a Tesla car today would have cost like $1 million. And it now costs like 13 grand. (laughs) And that is amazing. And like, so like, I I, I often get this, like when I think about like uh, climate action and like, I've been really frustrated by like, how slow progress has been and it seems like we've not been making progress. But when you think about the cost of these technologies a couple of decades ago, it's very obvious why we weren't making a lot of progress. Like no one was buying a car that cost a million pounds for right. the for the battery. Um, and it's the same for like solar and wind, for example. They were just way too expensive for the world to adopt. And part of why I'm so optimistic is because all of these technologies are now very, very cost competitive. It's just a completely different situation from where we were even a decade ago, where it just seemed completely unfeasible that we would that the world would pay loads of money to install them. And now it just seems obvious because they're actually in many cases cheaper. Like the the 
The cost of solar panels has fallen by more than 90% in the last decade. <laughs> in the last decade. Okay, so bringing it back to air pollution then, it sounds like you're hopeful that this kind of um, kind of trajectory that we've seen with some technologies um, will, will happen again. And the technologies that will make middle-income and low-income countries uh, be able to like cross this Kuznet curve for air pollution in particular faster and, uh, I don't know, more easily um, than other countries have, uh, will be kind of developed as uh, richer countries keep improving on the technologies um, yeah, that make air pollution a much smaller problem. Yeah. Are you, is that kind of the default outcome? Do you have a guess at how long it will take? I think that's, I think that's mostly the case. I think the, I think even, even because the costs of these technologies have fallen so much, like a decade, a couple of decades ago, it was like mostly rich countries that were investing in them. Like now it's like swinging a lot because they're now much cheaper and like China for example like it's moving towards like also upper middle income countries are like also really investing so China for example like I think people can't or don't understand or can't get their head around how quickly China is moving on renewable energies for example or electric cars like really 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 quickly I think huh. they are, it's because they're seeing very clearly, like, it's not an economic sacrifice anymore. It's like an economic opportunity. And these are the, these are the markets that are developing. And if you want to get in there, you want to get in there first. And I think they're, they're seeing that as an opportunity. Setting aside air pollution now, um, it sounds like one of the other problems, environmental problems that you looked at uh, that is going particularly badly is biodiversity. Can you say more about what you learned that made you feel, I, I don't know, I guess more um, worried about uh, the state of biodiversity? So I think biodiversity is a very, like, it's a very challenging one to cover. It was even a very hard one to write up because it's just so hard to measure global biodiversity. I bet. Like, how do you do it? It seems like there are like, countless species and we don't even know how many we're unable to count right so you have like more than a million species known there's probably several more million that we don't really know and can't study of course with every species you then have however many more like populations within those species and different places and locations so you're talking about just millions and millions and millions of populations to track and it's how you possibly do that but also from that find a way of communicating to people like what's happening to biodiversity and then also trying to work out like how we fix it, how we solve it. So it's like, it's, it's very, very difficult. I mean, I didn't go into it with very high expectations that I would find a lot of good news and I didn't come away with like tons more good news. Uh, there are particular examples and cases where biodiversity is improving or is stable, but very much most trends are going in the wrong direction. And I think why, potentially why I'm most worried about that is that basically to tackle biodiversity loss, there's not a, like, there's not many really particularly unique solutions there. It's basically tackling all the other environmental issues that we're facing, right? So the, the threats to biodiversity are deforestation or habitat loss for food production or climate change or overfishing. So basically you solve the biodiversity problem when you solve all of the other problems. Uh, so it's kind of almost like 
contingent on us being able to do the other stuff, which might mean that it kind of comes in, like we, we, we succeed on that last, maybe on the list. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. That makes sense. There's not much that's like super targeted toward just biodiversity that's like much more effective than just like solving the other problems. Right. I think there's one, like there's stopping biodiversity loss, which is the like tackling all the other problems. There's like, there are like some positive signs of like unique biodiversity stuff where like, for example, like reintroducing species or restoring populations where like in Europe, for example, like if you look over the last 50 years, there's been like this uh, come back in many like large wild mammals and like some of that is is through like deliberate reintroduction so like the eurasian beaver for example has been reintroduced in 24 countries or the european bison which was like basically on the brink of extinction it was like extinct in the wild and uh, we've managed to to basically bring it back from the brink so there are particular examples where you can do like really focused biodiversity stuff but you don't stop losing it until you tackle all of the other problems. Right. Yeah, right, right. Okay. I wonder if we should take a step back and talk about why biodiversity matters in the first place. I yeah have the sense that people care about it for different reasons. For example, some people care about it intrinsically uh, because they think it's kind of inherently good for there to be a wide range of plants and animals in the world. Um, and then others seem to care about it more instrumentally. Um, so they care about maintaining biodiversity because different species do different valuable things uh, for, you know, parts of the ecosystem uh, that humans value economically, or I guess that they just enjoy. Um, yeah. Why, why do you care about biodiversity? I think actually probably a mix of the above. Like, I think I've always wanted to come up with like this, like crux argument that like everyone buys into and like, I can really summarize clearly why biodiversity matters. Like, I think the scientist in me always wants to, to like, put forward the, like, more instrumental argument of, like, we need biodiversity uh, to have a livable planet for our, like, food production, our water systems, etc. And that's certainly true. Like, we, we do need that. And there are very, like, obvious reasons why we need to protect biodiversity in that way. Well, I think that often sometimes disconnects with like how we feel about it or how we like prioritize stuff so like I would make that argument but I am also very aware that the species that like actually do most for that instrumental impact like the bugs for example like I feel less I feel very less protective of the bugs than I do over like the like cute mammals so there's just this like emotional mismatch for me as well but I think the, the 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 instrumental like argument is obviously is quite obvious and is true. But I think in some sense I just need to let go of the scientific argument as well and just accept that like I just like having this beautiful planet with these diverse species and it feels really wrong to destroy them and and take them away. And we thought we've already done a lot of that and like it breaks my heart a bit that we could be we're continuing to do that and we would do more of it. So I think there's this like, for me, there's this awkward mix of like, yes, there's an instrumental arguments, but also our planet is just really beautiful and we should protect it. Yeah. Like the, like the example I use in the book is, um, so there's a specific species of white rhino, which where there's only two individuals left and they're both female. So like, if we're going to save them, we basically need to do like some fancy science to bring them back because <laughs> that's not going to happen naturally. So yeah, so there's a really serious situation where they could, like, it's very likely that they would go extinct. 
and like I use an example of where I'm often so focused on the instrumental argument um, and it's true that like many species contribute to like our having a livable planet in, in often complex ways that we can't identify so it's hard to identify this species is doing and this is not but I think in this example like if those two last rhinos die and that species goes extinct I can't argue that that has an instrumental impact on our ecosystems because it's obvious that that those two are not, yeah. But like, I still feel this like really um, strong emotional pull to protect them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Okay, so I guess different listeners will resonate with different parts of that. But yeah, it seems like uh, you care about them for kind of a range of reasons. So getting on to just how how things are going, um, how would you describe the decline in biodiversity? With all the the caveats we gave of it being so complex to measure, I mean my my overall summary from the research is that biodiversity overall is declining and declining pretty quickly. That doesn't mean it's declining everywhere and it's declining. Uh, at the same rate, there are there are populations that are stable and there are populations that are actually increasing. So it's not all bad, but the overall trend is is definitely downwards. Like I would say that pretty confidently. I think there's just the issue of like reporting like really single studies and people interpreting them as like this is happening everywhere. Like there was a famous insect study where I think they said that a population, like the insects were plummeting by like 90% or something. And it was at like the, this one site of butterflies in Germany. And then that was extrapolated to like, this is how fast insects are, are plummeting. And I actually think insect populations are falling very, very quickly. Okay, But it's this, it's this complication of, and I actually empathize a lot with the researchers of, they also need to get the message across in an urgent way. How do they do that while also being accurate and right, also, intellectually honest? Right. Um, and I think that's just overall just an issue with, with this stuff. Yeah. Okay. It sounds like it's hard to communicate, but that overall it feels clear to you that biodiversity is declining and has been. Do you have like, um, I don't know, something like a top three, like things that will both make a big dent in some of these issues and that also just seem like a win because they'll tackle several at one time? Yeah, there's like, like the very obvious one is to switch from fossil fuels to renewable or nuclear technologies. There you're addressing climate, but you're also addressing air pollution. The other one, the big one on food is to eat less meat, especially beef. Interesting. And there you're hitting on like so many. So like one is the leading driver of deforestation. We use half of the world's habitable land for agriculture, most of it for livestock. So three quarters of that for livestock. So you're massively reducing the amount of farmland we use, which has knock-on impacts on biodiversity loss. You're you're tackling uh, climate change at the same time. So there's that one hits on like many of these different problems. Cool. Huh. I didn't, I guess I've like thought of, I don't know, eating less meat as like a big win and also just from uh, an animal welfare perspective, but it's not occurred to me that it's just like solving six problems at once. That's very right. cool. Mm-hmm. Like I think like food in general, now I'm going a bit of tangent, but food in general really like for me just sits at the heart of all of these issues. So if you look at the impacts of food production, so food production 
it was responsible for between a quarter and a third of greenhouse gas emissions. Fossil fuels, obviously, we need to address, but we also won't solve climate change without changing our food systems in some way. 70% of fresh water withdrawals are used for farming. Like when people think about water, they imagine they're like shower and like brushing their teeth, but most of it's agriculture. Right. We use half of the world's habitable land for growing food. Like the world is basically a giant farm. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's the leading driver of deforestation. It's the leading driver of biodiversity loss, like producing like fish. Like we have problems with overfishing. Again, that's about producing food. Like to me, it just sits like at the heart of like all of these issues. Fascinating. I would not have guessed that. Were there a couple of other of, I don't know, low hanging fruit or just um, really powerful solutions for addressing several of these problems at once? Yeah. The other big one is we just need to get rid of gasoline cars. And whether that's moving to electric vehicles, which for people that need a car in some way is is the better option or that, I mean, the best option of all is like not having a car whatsoever and improving public transport and cycling and walking. But we basically need to move away from from petrol or diesel cars. And it just has a massive benefit. Yeah. And what which problems um, does that make a big difference to? Is it mainly climate change? Climate change and air pollution. Are the two big ones there. Yeah. Nice. Cool. Yeah. What's another? Um, Another one is um, on the food front is increasing crop yields. So that like comes into one climate change because you're when you have low yields, you have to use more land to grow the food and farm. And that comes comes at the cost of what you could otherwise do with that land. So it has a climate carbon impact. It has a big impact on deforestation because you're you're expanding your farmland into forests has a big impact on biodiversity loss because of the basically taking over forests and grasslands and stuff with croplands and 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 in some sense agriculture also has an impact in in air pollution in in some ways as well so like like there's most issues that touches on yeah, I guess maybe we should just dive into that a little bit more. It sounds like the the solutions you're most excited about because they they kind of hit several of these areas are either energy related uh, or yeah, or food related. I guess you said that uh, we really need to kind of radically change our food system, and I don't really know what that looks like. I guess you've mentioned eating less meat. And so maybe part of it is uh, eating more plant-based food or some other kind of innovative food thing. But is there more to that, to that radically different food system? So, yeah. So I think the there it's probably not as complicated as it seems. There's like just a couple of like big, massive, low-hanging fruits. Oh, cool. Yeah. What are those? Like the biggest one is is eating less meat and dairy. And there I would say specifically beef. There's an interesting trade-off there. Like earlier we talked about trade-offs. And I think here is one where there's a very clear trade-off to me between the eating less beef and what you might substitute that for. So I often make the argument, you can switch to a plant-based diet, of course, Mm -hmm. but some people like eating meat and they like if you want to reduce your carbon footprint a very good swap would be to swap beef or chicken right and that to me comes with a very high animal welfare cost 
like one in the number of animals that you'd have to kill because you have to kill many more chickens to get the same amount of meat you'd get from a cow. But also to me, it seems like probably the life of chickens is much worse than it is for a cow in terms of welfare standards. So to me, that that's like one clear trade-off. Yeah. And, um, and I guess for people for whom eating meat is something they're not willing to compromise on, that is just a genuinely tricky trade-off that I'm sure people have very different views on. Um, where have you come down on it? Or maybe, maybe, you, maybe you just avoid both. I mean, I personally, I just avoid both because I don't want to make the decision. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think because the environmental impacts are so strong for me, I would probably come down on the side of substituting beef with chicken to lower the environmental impacts, but trying to trying to source from a as high welfare chicken producer as you can. Um, I, I know that people will disagree with me, on, with me on that. And like, I actually think the arguments are very strong on both sides. Maybe actually like the optimal is the between of to go for pork. If you wanted to like, like optimize between the two. Interesting. Anything else you're imagining when you're imagining changing the food system to solve more of these problems? So one, yeah. So one reducing meat consumption overall. I think it's very obvious to me that we're not going to switch overnight and we might not, we might just not get rid of meat consumption completely. Like we might just always have a world where there's some meat consumption. So I think there's, there's massive gains there from like the meat that we do produce. There's definitely much better ways of doing it and like much more efficient ways of doing it. So there is like a large, there's like low hanging fruit there and like optimizing where we produce the meat to reduce the environmental impact. The third one is increasing crop yields, which just has massive environmental benefits. And then the final, like really big one is just reducing food waste and losses. And there, there's two components to it. One is what we call food losses, which is like almost unintentional losses. So that often happens between like the farm and it reaching like the consumer or like the retail stage where like, People don't want to lose the food because they're losing money, but it might go off because they can't afford refrigeration or they don't, it gets damaged in transport. Or So there's various reasons why you would unintentionally lose food. And actually those losses are like pretty high. Really? Huh. I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah. Especially in slightly more common in lower income countries because often the supply chains are just not set up to preserve the food throughout the, the chain. And then there's what we would call consumer waste, where it's, to some extent, it's kind of deliberate. Like you have bought it and you didn't eat it, that you made a deliberate decision to do that. So those are the, like, there's two elements to like food losses and food waste, but both are pretty big. So when we think about food waste, I think we often think about the impacts as like, oh, there's going to be emissions in the landfill when I put it in the landfill. But the bigger impacts is like all of the land, water, energy, emissions you've wasted in producing it on the farm. That's the big impact. Right. So like around a quarter of food emissions are actually food that's wasted. So there's wow. like low like low hanging fruit there. I think I think Rob might disagree with me on this. Oh really? Like we okay. had we had a debate previously and by debate I, he posted on Twitter and I think I replied. Um nice. <laughs> where I think his argument was it either during the pandemic or was it when the, the Ukraine war started? But I think his argument was that 
food waste is having food waste is good because when there are crises, we have slack in the system. Right. Which I get the argument of that. But my counter argument is that if we were really serious about having slack in the system for emergencies or crises, like just having food waste is not the way to do yeah. it. Like you would just want be deliberate about it. Be like have a plan of like we're gonna preserve X amount of stocks and you, you actually get to pick what food it is rather than it being like the remaining perishables yeah, or right. <laughs> Yeah. So like I, I get the sentiment, but I think that's not the way to do it. Interesting. Nice. I appreciate you having the rub push back in your in your pocket. Yeah, okay. So the things that sound important from a food perspective are eating less meat, increasing crop yields, reducing food waste, I guess, both in the supply chain and also at the consumer level. Um, did I miss any? No. One one I think one I'd add is that um is about like what we use to produce our food. So like fertilizer inputs and pesticide inputs where, again, there's like a, a happy medium. I think a lot of people would argue that like we just shouldn't have these inputs whatsoever. That would be a terrible idea, even environmentally. <laughs> Interesting. Like, like having these inputs increases yields. So we need less land to produce the food. Right. And actually, we would be in big trouble if we got rid of fertilizers tomorrow. Right, right, right. Crop yields would just decline so much that we'd have to cut down forests to produce enough food. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so my argument is that many countries should actually, especially poorer countries, like would benefit from using more fertilizer. But there is the argument at the other end where lots of countries massively overapply fertilizer. And actually, by learning to use it more efficiently, we could use much less and it wouldn't impact crop yields. So there's definitely lots of benefits in ways that we can basically more optimise our fertiliser use, like not eliminate it, but definitely use it much better. Yeah, I want to move to a topic that shows, I guess, that we can successfully address environmental issues. So you've written a great article about a case where humanity was actually able to solve a big, huge, thorny environmental issue in the past. And I think you've argued that it was kind of our, at least our biggest and maybe our only example of a serious global environmental problem that was actually solved. Um, Why is that? I mean, I think there's maybe maybe two, actually. So I think ozone by far is the, the biggest one we've solved, especially because we've solved it on this like international level where like literally every country was involved. I'd say the other big one that we touched on earlier was acid rain, where there was just this massive concerted effort. We did in the end address it very quickly. Acid rain is slightly different in that um, not all countries have addressed it yet and to the same extent. So Europe, the US, mostly rich countries have done amazing on it, but there's still work to be done in some regions on it. But I think ozone is the example of like the big international problem where like the world got together. It was this really serious and pressing problem and actually just made amazing progress on it. So I like I like to use this this example um, as a good news story. Yeah, I was, I was like, I was surprised by the claim that it was, you know, maybe the only one, maybe just one of two. Um, And obviously, it was scary and sad to notice that, I guess, is the, is the issue that like, when you have environmental issues that are this, 
well, that are that are big, that are global, that are international um, cooperation and coordination between countries is usually just so hard. We don't end up getting, I don't know, everyone to come together and, and solve the issue. I think there's a couple of issues. One is that they are it's very hard to get cooperation and it's often very hard to get cooperation because global inequalities are so large and countries are in such different positions. So you can see the example of climate change, for example, is you've got rich countries that are emitting loads. You've got middle to low income countries that are emitting less, but will probably emit more in the future. And it's like, how do you they still want to grow economically, like with very good reason, and they need fossil fuels to do that. So it's like, how, like, why would you tell us, this, like, why would we stop doing that to put climate change first? So that you just get very complex dynamics. And the, I think the other, the other sticking point for many of these other problems is that the the alternatives are like expensive, right? Um, and there's not like an easy switch. Why I think ozone was slightly different, and we can come on to it later, is one, many of the biggest emitters were also the countries that were most alarmed or like maybe had the highest impact from it. Right. So they had like a strong incentive to take action. And it's also that the in the end, they were like fairly easy switches that we could make to solve the problem which is like much easier than than completely switching away from fossil fuels for example right okay so so the ozone layer problem was like kind of an example of solving one of these problems on easy mode but maybe there are still things to learn from this case and i guess i i, I want to go through the whole story uh, to see yeah both what there is to learn and just because i think it's really interesting but we should probably do a little bit of background on yeah the problem of the ozone layer and i guess starting really basic am i right in remembering that the ozone layer is important because it basically shields humans and animals from kind of uv radiation that's harmful to us yeah that's right so here i think it's um important to distinguish between what we'd call like bad ozone and good ozone so you get ozone close to the surface um of the earth so like pretty much in the air that we breathe in and that's what we call bad ozone because when it's close to the surface it's basically an air pollutant that has impacts on our health so we don't want it close to the surface but we also have ozone like high in the atmosphere in what we call the stratosphere, which is like around like above 15 kilometers above the surface up to around like 35. And as you say, like the purpose of the ozone at, up in the stratosphere is that it basically blocks a lot of harmful UV radiation. So it's partly what makes our planet livable. Like if all of that UV radiation was beaming down on us, we'd be in trouble. Can you talk me through the story of how we realized that we were, yeah, we are creating this hole in the ozone layer? Yeah, so we, I kind of started with a Dutch scientist called Paul Crutzen, who, I mean, he's very, he's like, a, he was like an idol of mine. He was like a very amazing environmentalist. Um, like he was the, he was the guy that coined the term, or at least is attributed to him as like coining the term Anthropocene. Oh, wow. So he was nice. that guy. He sadly died a few years ago, but like had a big, big impact on environmental science. So this was in like the late, the late sixties, early seventies, where there was a lot of theories about like what the chemistry of the upper atmosphere was like, like what the reactions were like. 
And like a lot of this was theoretical because we just didn't have the instruments and the technologies to like measure it properly. So a lot of it was theoretical. But Crutzen often had like disagreements with others on like what was actually happening up there. He thought like a lot of the theories were wrong. And actually up in the atmosphere, there was like nitrogen compounds and light that could be interacting with ozone to break it down. The problem is that like a lot of this was theoretical and he didn't really have the evidence, like the experimental evidence that would like finalize it and get like consensus around it. Right, right. So he basically just like developed a theory that was like, there are things going on in that atmosphere that might mean we're breaking down ozone. And he had some of the background understanding of why ozone is protective. Uh, And so he, I guess, was like, oh, this could be a problem, but he didn't actually have kind of empirical evidence of it. Yeah, exactly. At the time, he was most concerned about supersonic jets because they obviously fly very high in the atmosphere and they emit these nitrogen compounds that he was really concerned about. And he was, like, at the time, he was, like, mostly dismissed by other scientists as, like, this is just, like, a like a hoax theory. It's, like, not really true. So that was his main concern. In the end, like, it actually wasn't really the nitrogen compounds that they were at issue and the supersonic jets didn't seem, didn't actually turn out to be a massive problem. But he really laid the groundwork for, like, Human emissions of stuff could be depleting the ozone, and this is why. Right. Okay. So he, yeah, he had the theory and he like pushed it. Yeah. And then how did we end up confirming at least uh, some parts of it that compounds were reacting with ozone in a way that was, yeah, net negative for humans? Yeah. So partly in tandem or like a few years later from like Paul Crutzen doing this work, two scientists called Roland and Molina, or that's, that's their surnames, they were proposing like slightly different, but like also could break down ozone. And that was what we call chlorofluorocarbons. So these CFCs. Now these are chemicals we use and or we did use in like aerosol sprays and refrigerants and industry. And they were basically hypothesizing the same that like these could react with ozone high in the atmosphere and break it down. Again, for a long time they just didn't have the empirical evidence of it, like it was mostly theory-based, they did start to not necessarily gain evidence that that's what was happening like high in the atmosphere. But one of the reasons for their hypothesis is that they could basically model model these CFCs like through the lower atmosphere. And basically what they discovered is that they weren't breaking down. So they were like sticking around and they were obviously like moving up and up and up and up into the upper atmosphere. So they they knew like, oh, these compounds are ending up up and high in the atmosphere where the ozone is. We think they're going to react with the ozone and break it down. But it was like several years before they got experimental evidence. So like they shared this and like they bought up their theory in like 1974 when they kind of mostly first published it. And then by 1979, NASA was actually started tracking the concentrations of ozone in the high atmosphere and it's then that they found that year after year they were starting to see this decline in ozone high in the atmosphere right so it's the story of like several scientists like really had the theory and like the theory actually turned out to be right but it was several years before we had the experimental evidence that it was actually happening cool yeah it just seems like impressive theorizing and and I guess advocacy from the scientists yeah I think the I think that's true like I think although these scientists are like 
all three of them actually won the Nobel Prize for this work. Oh, wow. Okay, that's great. So it was later recognized, yeah. even though at first people didn't believe it. Yeah, cool. so at the time they were like mostly dismissed, um, but they did like reap the awards in the end. Uh-huh. Like before uh, NASA started finding this empirical evidence, it sounds like people weren't taking it super seriously. Does that mean that there was just kind of no international response? Like no one was trying to regulate these compounds um, that were reacting with ozone? Yeah, like there was very little action. Like there were some stories like from the scientists publishing it, like that this was a problem. And I think some like consumers in like the US, for example, were like a little bit concerned. Really, the action was very little. Like a few countries banned their use in like aerosol sprays, but like they didn't ban them in other sources. And like that was mostly brought on because some consumers were like starting to shift away from them already because they were concerned about this problem. But in the scheme of things, it was very little. Like the US um, Environment Protection Agency, like their head at the time was completely dismissive of it as a problem. Wow. There was obviously very strong pushback from industry. So DuPont, who was the largest producer at the time, like they were like they were on it like this is a this is like complete hoax. Like they were very much wow. in denial mode. So there was it was pretty much the scientists versus politicians that didn't want to hear it, industry players that didn't want to hear it. So like the response initially was very slow. Okay. That sounds familiar. Yeah. What what changed? So I think there was a couple of key things. One is just that the the experimental evidence just started to build over time. So in 1985, there's like a big report came out of like the scientific summary of it. And there was like really strong evidence and measurements of it that like ozone was actually depleting. I think by far the most striking evidence or like what really shook people and woke them up is that we... Our scientists finally captured a picture of the ozone hole over right, Antarctica. Right, of course. Yeah, yeah. So the scientists, actually, they, they actually captured it in 1983. Um, so they, hmm. it's not like they took a picture. They used like solar satellite stuff to, to capture it. But they actually captured it in 1983, but didn't publish it until 1985 because they realized how big this was. Like they were going to publish, there was a massive hole growing over Antarctica. Right. So they wanted to be like really, really confident. This like wasn't a measurement error. So they were really careful before publishing. I guess at that point, did people start to pay attention, react? And I, I don't know, I guess advocate for something to change? Yeah, exactly. So like, I mean, we were talking about the ozone hole, like it's bit, it's massive. Like at right. the time, it was like 10 million square kilometers, which is like about the size of the US. <laughs> oh my gosh. I actually did not have the sense that it was that big. And then that is, yeah, huge. I mean, it, it eventually grew to 25 million square kilometers, which is like the size of the entire like Americas as a, as of like full continent. It was really, really massive. So like, I think the picture like hit the front page of the New York Times and like, it was mm. like, it was a really big, like, oh my God, there's something big's happening here. So like the public started demanding that, that something be done about it. I think the other big changes at the time were significant. So like the previous head of the US Environmental Protection Agency, who was like really dismissive, they were gone a new person was in and they were they were like very much like this is a problem we need to address it combined with that so you had like the public asking for action some of the head politicians being like yes this is a problem but also importantly industry had to get involved because DuPont who was the like 
lead manufacturer of CFCs, their patent ran out. So basically, they were they somewhat, to some extent, felt exposed in the market because they no longer had their patent on CFCs. Uh huh. So then they kind of played this game of we've ran out of our market for CFCs. We're going to take the market for the alternatives. So they basically made the really strong argument of we actually can do this technology in a few years. We can fix this in a few years. We just need the right market incentives to be in place for us to do so. Like maybe you should ban the CFCs so others can't move in and do it. (laughs) And we'll take the alternative market. So they actually played it pretty well. Okay. Okay. So some of it was like really deliberate science. And then some of it was kind of some luck. I mean, it sounds like the patent just ran out. And if it hadn't, DuPont might have never advocated for banning those compounds. At that point, what happened? Um, what was the what was the action taken by governments? So there was like some move from industry then that like we could actually produce alternatives to CFCs um, that would maybe not be like that expensive. So I guess then that opened up the case for like politicians to say, okay, there is actually a substitute that we could switch to if we put the right regulations in place. So countries, like a number of countries, mainly the largest producers at the time, so like US, Canada, Europe, Japan, etc., they basically formed to form what we called like the Montreal Protocol. And that was in 1989. So they basically signed this protocol where they said, globally, we want to half global production of these CFCs within a decade. So by 1999, which was like obviously good. But I think the key thing from that is that even halving by 1999, the limits they put in place in the Montreal Protocol like would not have been enough. Interesting. So the so the limits were not going to be enough. Did they meet them? Did they exceed them? What happened from there? Yeah, so I think the issue is that even like halving emissions by 1999, like the ozone depletion would have continued. Like it wasn't enough to like not only like stop ozone depletion, but like switch it into recovery mode. So basically what happened is that they came up with like this like ratcheting mechanism where like every few years they would reevaluate and like increase the ambition huh. over time. Okay. And actually by like within like not that long, within uh by nineteen ninety two, like really the the agreement that actually switched it from like ozone is still going to deplete to like actually we will like address the issue was was in right Co- start to recover was in nineteen ninety two in Copenhagen, and by that point they'd increased ambitions for the countries that were in the protocol, but also more countries were joining. I think they could see like oh this is actually feasible. It's maybe economically not that expensive, um, so more countries started to join. And the story since there is that like in the end it got like universal ratification, so every single country in the wow. world joined. Basically, we have reduced emissions by more than 99% since the 1980s. That is, yeah, that's amazing. A huge success. Uh, I can't think of really anything, at least in this category, that feels remotely as as huge as that. Is the ozone fully recovered? Is it okay now? Uh, no, definitely not. Okay. It's barely recovered. So okay. the the hole has stopped has stopped growing. Um, so it's no bigger than it was at its peak. And it's actually now shrinking a bit. Okay, so it's just starting to shrink. It's just starting to shrink. 
and it will take like many decades for it to fully recover. Like this will be a slow process. Like you're talking maybe 2080 or so before it's, wow. it, it gets back to where it was. But the key thing is that we're no longer depleting it. Like we've eliminated the problem. We now just need to like leave it and let it recover on its own. So we've done basically done all that we can and it, it will recover if we just leave it alone. Yeah, I guess, I mean, that's kind of disheartening. These kinds of environmental issues seem to often take decades to recover after you kind of neutralize the problem. And it seems like that kind of thing will be true of climate change as well. But it seems like from start to finish, meaning from when we like noticed the problem to when we, I guess, got that universal ratification and got to net zero, uh, or sorry, it wasn't quite net zero. It was like a reduction of emission of those compounds to to just 1% of what they'd been. Is yeah, that right? Uh, like even less than that. Like I would, I would basically oh, wow. go as far to say like we basically just don't really emit them anymore. Just eliminated. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. And that sounds like it took... A couple of decades, like three-ish. Is that right? Yeah, I guess it depends like what your starting point is. Like is your starting point like when we first saw it was a problem or is it like when we were like, yes, we're actually going to act on it? I think, yeah, like we were talking about several decades. I mean, you'd want it to have have happened faster, but that still seems promising to me. And, and so I do feel, yeah, just very inspired by this story. And yeah, I guess I'm I'm really interested in what we can learn from it. What do you think the biggest takeaway for addressing kind of other big global environmental problems that require international coordination the way this one did? I think one big lesson is just that we, as you said, like I think we often see these problems as like inevitably they're going to take a long time and action just has to be slow. And I think there's just this problem, but like also like some other like specific examples where like change can happen fast if we actually like put our mind to it. So I think like it's not inevitable that progress on these have to, has to be slow. Like we addressed this like relatively quickly. The acid rain story, like for like many countries, was like also very fast. If you look at China, like when China wants to take action, it right. works very quickly. And I'm not saying that that's a model that other countries can emulate for various reasons. But it just there's just several examples where it's clear to me that like it's not inevitable that we have to be slow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And probably challenging the assumption that it takes many, many decades is an important step toward then demanding action be taken um, much more quickly than it than it might otherwise. Yeah, I think the I think often politicians or policymakers, for example, can get away with the argument of, yeah, it's just going to take a long time. Like this, these things just take a long time. But I actually think if you can bring real examples where where that's just not the case, then it's like very hard for them to retreat from that. Like I always make this argument, um, again, coming back to earlier where we're discussing like relatively small emitters today and like what role they can play in actually addressing climate change. And there I think there's a very clear example of if a country takes action and almost provides a model for which other countries can follow, then it makes a massive impact. And there, there's the speed thing. So, you, so, for example, you see Norway. So Norway, nearly all of the cars sold in Norway today are electric, and which like is just way ahead of anyone else in the world. And it's done that very quickly. So no other country can use the excuse that they can't scale electric vehicles very quickly because we have examples that it's happening. 
I guess Norway is really wealthy, so there will be barriers for many countries to doing that. But um, for, yeah, for some, for yeah, for like the poorest by far, um, for sure that's the case. But like even China, for example, so China, like more than a third of uh, new cars sold in China are electric. It's, wow. In the next few years, I would expect it's like within the next three years, maybe it's going to be more than half of new cars sold. Wow. In, like it's moving really quickly. So I, I, I think there will be examples. Yeah. Okay. That feels like a really compelling example. Yeah. Are there, are there any other lessons to be drawn? Yeah. So I think the, like what's very clear is that the alternatives need to be cheap. Like it needs to be very easy for people to replace them. And that's the argument that I was making earlier that like when it comes to climate change, for example, like the alternative energy sources or even if you're talking about food, like meat substitutes, like they need to be cheaper than meat and renewable technologies need to be cheaper than fossil fuels. And if they're not, then you're just not going to get a fast switch. Yeah. Yeah, I guess if a big difference between this problem and climate change is that the cost to ceasing the use of these chemicals um, was very low compared with stopping the use of fossil fuels. It might be actually pretty hard to learn much from the ozone case. It does seem really impressive that we got around the free rider problem where some countries could have just continued to use the chemicals that were depleting the ozone. And it's pretty remarkable to me that we got to universal ratification. And it sounds like that was not because of any like threats made was the main thing that happened that things just got cheap enough that those countries realized it wasn't a huge sacrifice um to get on board yeah i think towards the like the later stages of that transition um for the smaller emitters or the poorer countries yeah the market was just almost then set up to not have cfcs in them so i think they'd already like the switch then was very easy but i think in terms of like how it started and why rich countries took it seriously initially, which I guess is maybe one of one of the lessons is that and is maybe the the inverse to some extent of climate change, is that to some extent the richest countries had the most to lose or like felt the most threatened by it. And the reason for that is that like one of the big like concerns at the time from the ozone hole and depleting ozone was the impact that it has on skin cancer. So there were lots of scary headlines at the time of like X number of million, like more skin cancer cases, etc. like across the New York Times, for example. And you're going to get more like skin cancer is more prevalent and you're more at risk if you have lighter skin, which tends to be at higher latitudes across Europe or the US, for example. So the, the almost the, the highest risk was for the countries, the richest countries that were producing the most. Yeah. So they are the incentives to reduce were were aligned. Right. Yeah. I mean, does that mean that we should be pessimistic about seeing stronger action taken on climate change until the effects are more viscerally felt in rich countries? Mm, I think I would have made that argument maybe like five, ten years ago. I just I don't I think it's like moved the arguments like moved on a lot since then. And I think like a big part of it comes down to like the way or at least in the way that I think that countries should see the climate change problem where like in the past, because the alternatives were really expensive, as I said, it seemed like a sacrifice of like, I'm having to, it's costing me lots of money to replace my fossil fuels with these alternative technologies. 
Whereas I think countries are beginning to see that it's in many senses like an economic opportunity. And like another big thing that's factored into it recently has been like the argument for like energy security and domestic energy security where rich countries don't want to be exposed to like volatile fossil fuel markets or like be under threat when when Russia invades Ukraine and uh, there's like problems of gas and oil supplies. So many countries are like also finding additional arguments to like see it as an investment where they want to be basically in charge of the domestic energy supply. Yeah, cool. That sounds pretty reassuring to me. Yeah. Is there anything else you think we should learn from the ozone case? I think maybe one additional one is like from a market perspective, I think it's just really important to show companies like there is like a large market for the preferred technology that you want. Like the DuPont example is they moved in because they saw like the market and economic opportunity there and they quickly changed course. And I think in climate change, like we are actually starting to see that. Like you can see it in electric vehicles, for example, where like all of the companies are now doing this pivot because they know that if they're not manufacturing electric vehicles, then they're going to get left behind. And that just never, like that wouldn't have been the case like five to 10 years ago. So it's like almost like reorienting the market to like show companies there is this massive opportunity and it's also aligned with this environmental change that we want to see. Okay, so I think this is really reinforcing the value of consumer choices to me, which, yeah, I think just hasn't felt as visceral to me lately. Are there are there any arguments that that consumer choice is is less important or like any does, is there anything that gives you pause about this idea that having people in rich countries kind of buy the things that uh, are better for the environment, that that's like uh, an important thing to do? I think probably one of the counter arguments that I'd see people making is that rich consumers might just use these technologies but just consume more for example like okay energy is getting cheaper but maybe you just have this rebound where then you just use more energy right so you just have this like endless race to like ever increasing energy consumption right yeah do we have evidence one way or the other about that um no, not well, not to the extent there is like there is this like energy efficiency rebound effect in some species where like if you make your fridge more efficient, you just buy a bigger fridge or like car examples where you just get a bigger car. OK, so that is true to some extent. It's true to some extent. If you look at energy consumption across rich countries, it's like mostly not increasing in fact, it's actually in, uh, decreasing in some countries. It is decreasing. Um, decreasing or stable, I'd say, for most rich countries. Okay, great. I guess there are a bunch of differences between the ozone case and some of these other environmental issues, but I feel good about drawing some lessons from there. Let's move on and talk a bit about your work at Our World in Data. Are there any specific topics that you'd want to cover, but but that you can't because of a lack of reliable data? I mean, I think for like, there's one for me that's like... Like maybe just like not, not, I wouldn't call it a pet peeve, but there's like one specific one where I think one of my arguments might change a lot based on if the evidence was different. And for me, that one is microplastics. So my... Oh, interesting. My argument around plastic pollution is that the main problem with plastic pollution is not necessarily that we're using plastic. It's what we do with it. 
like a lot of people target the like to end plastic pollution we need to end plastic use right like stop using plastic water bottles or something so it's like eliminate plastic completely but like if you actually look at the fundamental problem of like plastic ending up in the ocean it's a waste management problem and it's mostly a waste management problem in middle-income countries where we're using lots of plastics but don't have the waste management yet to like dispose of it properly. Mm-hmm. It's not that it's a complete non-issue in rich countries, but like we count for a really tiny percentage of plastics that end up in the ocean. And the reason for that is not because we don't use a lot of plastic. We do, but it reaches landfill, it's recycled, etc. So my core argument there is like the solution to plastic pollution is to manage it better, not to eliminate it. My argument on that would change or would I think would have to be different if we saw that there were like real detrimental health impacts of microplastics, which come from inevitably from plastic use. So currently I haven't seen very convincing evidence that microplastics is a big problem on terms of like human or like animal health. We know that there's everywhere. So like there's always a, there's a study come out every week that we found it in Antarctica. And so like microplastics are everywhere. We still don't know if they have any notable impacts on health. If they did, then plastic use would be a, a much higher priority than just stopping the plastic going in the ocean. So that's like right, right, right. one area that's like I think is like a, a major blind spot where I would significantly change my mind and my proposition of solutions. Hmm. Can you give an example of of what kinds of products have microplastics? So the like the people use always use the examples of like I don't know you get some like creams and stuff where they have the little beads. Yeah, but right. actually the main source of microplastics, like microplastics, is just small plastic particles. So like basically everything in the end breaks down into microplastics. So your plastic, oh, your, I see. your big plastic bottle will degrade and eventually it'll end up as like tiny plastic particles. Right. Okay. So it's not that some products use microplastics more than others. Um, at least at least that's like mostly not the issue. The issue is that when the products degrade, they become microplastics. Yeah. And we just don't have the data on whether those microplastics are causing harm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's really surprising to me. In part because I've I've totally heard this idea that they cause harm. And I assumed there was uh, evidence supporting that. But yeah, it's kind of disheartening to realize. Uh, I guess maybe it's one of those hypotheses that could turn out to be right. And then, you know, we'll be glad that people were advocating to reduce microplastics. But it sounds like the jury's still out. Yeah, like I think the problem there is like the attribution of the, from a like, environmental perspective and I mean by that I mean like different chemicals and stuff that we're now exposed to and as an environment is like it's very hard to like discern like one single one from from the others so if you see a change in a particular like health metric for example how do you know it's microplastics or like some other some other compound Got it. Okay, that sounds genuinely hard, but people are researching it. And maybe maybe at some point in the near future, uh, we'll have more data on yeah, it. Hopefully. Yeah, I guess another question I have about your work is kind of more about your experience of doing it. What would you say is the hardest thing about uh, what you do at OID? So I think the some of the hardest stuff we have at OID, and like I'm surrounded by an amazing team, but I think we all like struggle with similar thing is... Managing or balancing this 
point about like trying to show that we can achieve progress and that progress is happening whilst right. not falling or like being perceived as being complacent at the same time like it's this mix of like right, of course the world's getting better but we still have a lot of work to do and like how you communicate both of those at the same time or as like Max Rosser, like my, my colleague and the founder of our own data, like published this Venn diagram where it's like three statements are true at the same time. So like the world is awful. So like we discussed like some of the terrible uh, statistics earlier, the world is much better and the world can be much better. And the point is that on most problems, like all three of those are are true at the same time. But it's really hard to like hold all of those thoughts at the same time. So it's like how you you manage people's expectations or counter arguments uh, around those. Right. I feel like some people feel like betrayed or like angry or something um, when you say the world is better, given that the world is is also horrible and convincing them that you're on the same team, that you still want the world to be much, much better, even though you're acknowledging that the world is better than it was, uh, seem, seems like a big challenge. Do you get basically, uh, I don't know, environmentalists um, or other groups critiquing OID, saying it's like just highlighting a positive spin on things in a way that's going to demotivate people from taking action or or that's kind of justifying um bad behavior on the parts of governments and individuals i think we get it like a little bit less than we used to like i think we were definitely used to be framed as like the good news guys um like which we weren't at all like that was like obviously not the aim and like that's like if you looked under the hood that's not the what that was definitely not the point of our own data but i think we get that slightly less so I think I definitely still get that on the environmental stuff, like, I don't know, showing that CO2 emissions in the UK have declined a lot or coals declined a lot. There's always the pushback of, yeah, but they they didn't do it early enough or they didn't do it fast enough or like some other like rebuttal of it. Um, And like you're actually like not helping the issue by highlighting that because you're like pushing people into complacency, which is like to me like just doesn't seem like a very convincing argument like for people to believe that it's actually possible to reduce emissions you need to show people examples that people have reduced emissions and then you go in and study like why that happened like there's so many lessons in there yeah no that makes tons of sense to me i guess people who worry about this framing might think that uh, environmentalist doomerism uh, is like essential for keeping people motivated to work on the problems. But it sounds like you think something like actually uh, a huge source of motivation is like we've we've like made progress, like we have to make more. But like the fact that we've made progress shows it's possible. And that is actually the inspiring thing that will motivate people to do more, which definitely feels true of me. I feel excited about encouraging people to work on these issues, uh, knowing that there are good things for them to do than I would just being like, this is a big, horrible problem. And like, it's not clear that we can solve it and we haven't done enough and we're not going to do enough. And it's an uphill battle and you'll never make any progress. Yeah, I think that's how I feel. I think one of the issues I see is like the lack of separation between how you feel about the problem and your level of optimism for like the solutions. So I think my framing is to like push action. People need to be really concerned about the problem. Right. To be to like have an interest and be motivated to act in the first place. 
But I definitely think that you can differentiate that concern for the problem from like optimism or about our ability to fix it. And I think the difference that I have is like so much of the narrative is pessimistic about being able to address it. And I'm more optimistic that we can. To some extent, I find some of the, the attitudes there like like quite weird. Like people have worked on this climate issue for decades and like dedicated their right. whole life to it. And often felt like the world was making absolutely no progress because to some extent, like it looked like we, we, we weren't or actually we weren't really making a lot of progress. But the last few years in particular, we're really seeing this really rapid uptick in renewables and electric vehicles. And all, like it's almost like we're at an inflection point where actually we're actually just starting and like progress is really happening. And to me, I don't know, like uh, maybe it's just my psychology, but I'd... I, I find it weird to to work on a problem so long and then see it like progress actually happening and to not be excited about it, but to be the opposite and still deny that actually anything's changing. Yeah, yeah, and I agree. That seems that seems surprising and bizarre. Um, are there any empirical studies on I don't know, like motivation uh, and whether? this kind of doomerism attitude or this kind of optimism attitude create more sustainable motivation? There's at least the data point of view. Um, but I, but yeah, curious if you've got either anecdotal evidence or, or yeah, the, like some, some studies behind this. Um, the, the research on it is not great. A lot of it is based on one like anecdotal, which is like very much against my like normal frame of reference. Like to some extent, like anecdotal, like, externally so like because of the coverage of our work and the exposure of our work like I just interact with a lot of people in this space and I pick up on patterns and I can see arguments and I get a ton of emails on my inbox from people saying they've given up on this problem like they don't see a way forward for it like some like some really like heart-wrenching emails where it's really clear people have just like completely given up so like I have like a reasonably big bank of anecdotal evidence but on the, the research side, I mean, what's from the like reasonable research we have, what's clear is that like people need to be like concerned to act. So people need to think that it's an urgent and serious problem to do something, which I would expect. When it comes to like the pessimism versus optimism, like what you f- you sometimes find is like like a lot of it, like sometimes they've based studies around like showing people like scary like films with like really pessimistic like climate like dooms kind of endings what they seem to find is that like if you show someone in a like really like doomsday movie initially they're like oh gosh we need to do something about this this is terrible this is where we could be heading but often that really like dies out very quickly they kind of revert back to normal right. like if, if you think about the i don't know if you saw the film like don't look up which had like so much hype at the time and everyone was like oh this is like so alarming and kind of drifted back like no like I don't really hear about it anymore but what they find is that you 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 if you if you're going to show like this uh like pessimistic this is where we could be heading thing what seems to be better for sustainable action is you need to combine it with this is what we can actually do about it so you need to give people like actionable stuff to go along with the the doomsday stuff, um, which again, I think comes back to my, I think you can like 
view the problem and the solution quite different. You can be concerned about the problem, but also optimistic about the solutions to address it. Yeah, I mean, that just makes tons of sense when I reflect on my own experience, which is just a bit more of the same anecdotal evidence. Yeah. Is there is there anything else that feels particularly hard about your work? Mm, I think like I I feel this personally, but I think it's also like like something that's like I'm sure like affects other people around data, like uh, especially in recent years is the platform like has grown a lot in recent years. Um, like a larger part to do with COVID because we became like the COVID right, of course. data people. And we had a large audience before that, but I think like, I think it's just shifted a lot. And now I think there's just this, a really intense pressure to get things right. Like people take our work very seriously. Often they'll frame it as like, I look at our own data and I take as gospel, like what you see on the website. And I just assume that that's true. Which is like a very... I have the same worries at 80,000 hours, but yeah, go on. Which is like a very, a very high bar. And like, obviously we mm-hmm. like, we do, we do a ton to make sure that we are getting everything right. But there is like a lot of pressure there and concern that like one error could like have like pretty bad consequences, like either in terms of like a decision that's made or just reputationally, like I think our own data, we always feel like we're just like one mistake away from our reputation being bashed. Wow. Yeah, that sounds really anxiety inducing. Yeah. It's like you're doing a bunch of excellent work, but it could just be one or a few mistakes that make it all, I guess, reputationally tarnished. Yeah, exactly. And I think like on a personal level, I think part of what's difficult is we cover so many different topics. Like it's really, really broad, like the topics that we cover. But to some extent, I also like straddle a lot of disciplines in some sense. Like we're researchers, we're data analysts, we're writers, we do data viz. So like in some sense, I feel like often like a little bit of imposter syndrome because I never quite feel like I'm the like expertly skilled in this discipline or I'm the expert in this topic. So I'm sure if I like went into, if I went into any of the academic fields that I write about and research, so it's like if I went into like a really nerdy climate conference, I'm pretty sure I would feel, I would I would definitely feel imposter syndrome because there, like, there's no way I'm like any of the experts in the room. In the same way that if I went to like, with a group of journalists like I'm not an expert writer I'm like an okay writer that can write about research and data viz and stuff so I think there's this like imposter syndrome that comes from like straddling so many different things at once yeah yeah I I've totally found that with yeah work that feels kind of generalisty where you try to be good at many things but then you're never exceptionally good at at a single thing and so when you're in a space about that thing uh you feel like you don't know as much as other people and you and you in fact probably don't and I find that it feels especially common in spaces where people are really focused on like actually making uh, an impact on the world because to do that you'd like tend to be uh, you tend to need to be very interdisciplinary you need to like look at a problem from lots of different angles and not do the kind of standard academic thing of like look at a really really narrow thing that you can like uh, solve with your own single discipline. Maybe it's like, I don't know, a like niche part of chemistry to solve problems like agricultural productivity and poverty in sub-Saharan Africa. 
you must need to think about like 10 different disciplines. And then I can totally imagine how you'd then just feel like you don't know enough about any any one of them. Yeah, definitely. That's that's definitely feeling where like in that sense, I'm sure like I like in the back of my head, I'm like the agricultural economist is not going to agree what I say. Probably the like right. the soil scientist not going to agree what, what I say. The guy, the agritech company is not going to. So like when you straddle so many different disciplines, it almost feels like none of the experts are really going to agree with what you're saying because you're trying to mix them up and come up, come up with like a true but in some sense, simplified narrative that people can understand. Yeah, yeah, that sounds really hard. And I guess the flip side is like, none of those experts can come up with a full kind of multidisciplinary, multidimensional solution. Like the soil expert will have advice on soil, but they won't be able to look at the problem as a whole and think about what all the possible solutions are uh, and point to some of the best ones, which, yeah, which feels like, a huge limitation. But I guess it sounds like your brain is um, understandably, and mine would too, uh, focusing on the ways that you're not as as expert as them, uh, even though you might uh, be able to offer more insights into like big problems. Have you made any progress on feeling less impostery? Uh, has anything helped? Mm, I think the way I respond to it, like sometimes like differs a bit. Like I think sometimes... I think to some extent the imposter syndrome has benefited me professionally. Like my my imposter syndrome often, like it often leads to anxiety, like as I said, about getting stuff right. And like it often seems very high stakes. And I think like professionally it's just very good if I'm like really paranoid about getting stuff right. Right. If you're meticulous and perfectionist. To that extent it's benefited me professionally, even if personally like it has Mm. quite a high toll on how I feel that's interesting in my own struggle with imposter syndrome I've found overall it's hindered my ability to do good work than more than it's helped but I guess uh in some types of roles that type of anxiety uh where you're worried about making a mistake if mistakes really are just extremely extremely bad can be can be helpful yeah, I think there. I think there's two sides to it. I think. I think overall, it's been a benefit. I can still see, and I like read your essay on um, imposter syndrome, and I loved it. No, that's um, great. I think there's some cases where, like, I my reaction was similar to yours, where I would like opt out of doing stuff. Like a, a key example of here is like, for example, like interviews. So like, I do a lot of interviews. And like about like often with like news media because they want like to get the facts right for their articles, which is great. Sure. Um, or like on the radio and like I do a lot of them, but like I often I also like turn down a lot of them. Now, some of them I turn down because like I just can't possibly do them all. But some of them I turn down because one, I either feel like I'm not the expert that they should be speaking to about that, which is sometimes right. But sometimes I think it's not right. And I like could very easily answer their questions. So I either reject <laughs> it because the I feel like I'm not expert enough or also because I just know that to them, it seems like I'm giving them 10 minutes of my time to give them the answer. But because I'm so paranoid about getting the stuff right, 
I probably check it then five times and then I come back to it later to check it. And then I probably have a sleepless night in case I gave them the wrong number uh, and they put it on the radio. Yeah. So like often sometimes I just say no because I'm like, I actually want to sleep tonight. So I think from that perspective, it's definitely hindered. One, because like I probably could have given them a good answer and I didn't. And I guess that goes against my values because I often advocate like, News media should be like really meticulous about trying to get the the facts right and speaking to experts. And then when they ask me, I say no, which is not allowed. Right. <laughs> and then also because, um, yeah, I like often it just like takes quite a personal toll. Yeah, that sounds terrible. And I know the feeling of the sleepless night uh, when you're when you're worried you've made a mistake or might make a mistake in some like fact uh, you've been asked about and. It sucks. It really sucks. So yeah, I'm I'm really sorry to hear. You said that you feel like you've kind of made some progress on it. Is there is there a, a single thing that you feel like has helped most? Yeah, no, I think it, like it's definitely got a lot better. Like I I've actually done therapy and it was like like one of the big parts nice. of therapy. And like I think there's a couple of things we worked through which I found helpful. One is, and I actually think it's the opposite. Like is to some extent the opposite from you because I think it was one of the things you said like was really a hindrance for you and it's like the catastrophizing thing right yeah uh imagining the worst thing that could possibly happen yeah we're actually I think I find it quite useful sometimes to do that and to work through okay like I get the number wrong like I say like I go on the radio and I say the wrong number like what's the worst thing that could happen like, oh, like someone points out that I got the number wrong. I have to apologize to the BBC because I got the number wrong. They are understanding because people get numbers wrong. <laughs> like even yep. the best people get the numbers wrong. <laughs> yeah, right. And like I can't do that all the time and I probably have a limited number of lives on that. But like if I do that once, it's fine and it's not the end of the world. Yeah, that makes tons of sense. And I think, yeah, there's like a thing that I do... I mean, I catastrophize, um, but then I think you're, I think you're you're almost pointing at a slightly different thing, which I think I've also been encouraged to do in therapy. I think it, my therapist calls it like negative visualization and kind of really engaging with those worst case outcomes. Because the thing that I do is like catastrophize and then be like, and therefore I can't do it. Like if I do, I don't know, some interview and it goes horribly, like that would be unbearable. I'm just like gonna say no. But then, yeah, I totally buy and have sometimes uh, experimented with like, no, actually think about the worst case. And in fact, it's probably better than the like catastrophizing thing I was doing because the catastrophizing thing might actually have been even worse than the worst case. It's like if I do that interview and it goes badly, like everyone will think I'm an idiot and my partner will stop loving me and just like ridiculous things. And so imagining, I think the actual worst case, it sounds like for you and I think uh, hopefully for others can be a really healthy exercise of like, actually realistically, the worst case isn't quite as bad. And like, here's what would happen. I can like take steps to uh, manage like the really bad cases, but like, even if things go wrong, uh, mostly things are going to be okay. And like, if if they're not, then maybe then you say no, and maybe that's reasonable. But if they are, then maybe you get over the kind of like hump of constantly turning things down because you can like 
tolerate the kind of realistic worst case outcome a bit better yeah exactly and i think the i think they are like another big thing has just been like building an evidence base for the fact that like i've done all this stuff it hasn't gone wrong like it's going fine like i am careful with the numbers i'm not gonna just like pluck one out of thin air like i know that i'm careful and i like try to base everything on the research and i have evidence of like doing these perfectly fine so like often i should just draw on that and trust myself that this time i'm also gonna do fine totally yeah yeah that that exercise of like being able to recall all the times that you did the things and they went fine seems like huge I wonder how much you had to do that while you were writing your book, because I imagine to like write a book and put a bunch of these facts in print must feel like super anxiety inducing because it's it's less editable than um, the OID website. And uh, I guess, yeah, probably lots of people are going to review and critique it. Um, Did you feel a bunch of anxiety about that, um, about getting things right in the book? I think, uh, I mean, yeah, that, that's always been there. I think probably like less so when I was writing it because oh, nice. I was just enjoying writing it. I think what one thing that's benefited it is that like a lot of the stuff, as I said, has been based on like research I've done at our own day over the past seven years. So a lot of it has already been out there in the public for a long time. And if there were like errors or are really strong counter arguments. Like I feel like I would have got a lot of them by now just based on the number of eyes that are on it. But sure, like I'm like, it's not even that like the books on one topic, I literally cover every single environmental topic. And I'm sure there's going to be fishing experts that do not like the chapter on fishing or plastic experts that don't like the chapter on plastic. I mean, this is what is, is one of the like many great things about OAD is that we like now have like amazing um, opportunities to reach like the world's experts. Um, Mm, Yeah, that's really cool. So like each of the individual chapters has been reviewed by experts in that specific field. But I'm sure there's so many numbers in there that there will be people will have issues with some of them. Yeah, I don't know if you've thought at all about how to prepare emotionally for people finding errors um, if they if they are there. I mean, there's also a difference between an error and like a difference of opinion or interpretation of the right. facts. I mean, errors, like if there are errors, then they will be corrected. If there's differences of opinion, uh, like like to some extent is good because I'm generating discussion and like hmm. I'll look at it and good like be willing, like I'm always very willing to change my mind if I see convincing arguments. That's great. But also just because our like work on ODE is still is is so public like i'm i'm like kind of used to like the backlash by now oh really okay so some some exposure therapy has already worked for you okay well i'm glad it sounds like that isn't causing you as much anxiety um which which feels really hopeful to me i mean you've written a book you've given a ted talk and so it sounds like you've made enough progress to be able to still do really ambitious things not have your anxiety be uh horribly painful uh and and I think that's just great, given that it sounds like we've struggled with some of the same feelings. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, no problem. Cool. Well, I have taken loads of your time now, but um, we've got time for one final question. Yeah. What's one of the most valuable mistakes you've ever made and how can our listeners learn from it? Mm, here, I think I've got two. Like one is a really insignificant one. 
but like I learned it the hard way. The so the first one is so when I was doing my TED talk, I had my little like outfit planned. I had my little like blouse. I had it all ironed the night before. Like it was hanging up ready because I have it's like first on the next morning. So I was all prepared. I had for once I ironed my my shirt. And then like I turned up to the center and uh, I was like quite nervous. So I was like having a little seat on the sofa. I stood up. It was like just a bundle of like a bundle of creases. Totally creased. Totally creased. And I was thinking, oh no, like I'm going to go on the TED stage. My mum's going to see this talk and all she's going to (laughs) say is like, did you not iron your shirt? And the thing is I'd ironed my shirt for once. So like I was panicking. I was like, oh, what am I going to do with this shirt? I was considering running across to back to my hotel to iron it. The TED people were like, absolutely not. You're like, you cannot move from here now. You're like, you're on soon. Oh. Actually, like the TED, the staff at TED are amazing. Like they, it's very clear that they want to support you to be able to give like the absolute best talk you can. Oh, that's really cool. So a man, a man, a backstage man at TED, like I gave him my shirt and he went away and ironed it for me. And like, <laughs> and and if anyone watches TED Talk, you'll see it's like completely crisp. Um, oh, that's amazing. So my, my, uh, what listeners can learn from it is if you're giving a talk, you must remain standing before you do it the whole time. Yep. Okay. Excellent tip. Very practical. And then I think the second one is like more of a general one. And I think it's less of a mistake I've made. But in terms of advice, I think like a lot of people would have advised me against a lot of the like trajectories I've went on, where I'm sure they would have said, I think that's a mistake. And I think, again, this comes like back a little bit to like being this like generalist. So is an example something like working at OID, which is not obviously an academic institution despite having a PhD? Is that the kind of thing? Yeah. So like, yeah. So like really like clear examples is like, I was like very clearly told by many people, like, if you want to do research, you have to stay in academia. And right. like, OID is like academic tangential, but like it's not like right. core, like we don't write original academic papers. And I've been told many times, like, if you want to progress in academia, you have to write papers. And kind of my point is that I don't really want to progress in academia. So I think one of the lessons I've learned is to like be quite selective about who I take advice from. I think if you're going to go down like a traditional pathway, there's loads of great advice out there and people can give you amazing advice, especially if they've like climbed the ranks in that field. I think if you're kind of like straddling many different ones, you need to be a bit more careful because because it's such a like non-trodden path. People often can't see outside their like the traditional pathway that they followed. So I think it like for me because I I have like become more of a generalist. I think it's actually served me well to ignore some of the pieces of advice I've had in the past. Right, right. Um, yeah, I I would guess uh, it's true of at least some of our listeners um, who are who are trying to have impacts with their career, uh, often the problems they're trying to address are neglected and the solutions they're interested in are, um, well, yeah, I guess are also neglected. Uh, and probably it involves, uh, for some of them, some amount of like non-traditional path taking. Um, that definitely feels true of me. And it sounds like, yeah, it's really 
probably easy to get advice from people who have gone the traditional path and then be like, oh, no, am I doing the wrong thing? Like I'm supposed to stay in academia. And yeah, it sounds like you're saying for you, it's been really important to, I guess, would you say it was like taking advice from people who share more of your values or who understand your goals better? Yeah, I think that, I mean, there's a fine line. Um, My advice is not to like ignore all advice and sure. I think there you can like very easily fall into a trap where like no one understands what I'm trying to do so like I need to pave my completely like new path on my own I don't think that's the case there are people that can give you really good advice but I think you need to just be like a bit more selective and you need to find people that can maybe like think slightly beyond the conventional and also like have people that you really trust that really want to give you advice in your best interests, not about like, I don't know, trying to like serve an academic institution, for example. Um, Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Cool. That's all the time we have for today. Uh, It's been such a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Hannah. Thank you. I've loved it. Do you regularly watch video interviews on YouTube? We are trying to understand how many people would rather watch the show rather than listen to it. So if you would watch videos of our interviews, and indeed, if you already watch similar things on YouTube, do drop us an email at podcast at 80,000hours.org because we would love to chat with you about it. Keep in mind that as of quite recently, we now offer shorter highlights versions of our episodes uh, over on our other show called 80K After Hours. So if you'd like to sample from interviews before deciding whether to commit to listen to the whole thing, uh, go subscribe to 80K After Hours and you can find the the highlights uh, versions there. All right. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. The audio engineering team is led by Ben Cordell with mastering and technical editing for this episode by Myla Maguire and Dominic Armstrong. Additional content editing by Luisa Rodriguez and Katie Moore, uh, who also puts together full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more, always available on our site, 80,000hours.org. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon. 